What's up, dude? Uh, nothing. I guess you can hear me. <laughs> I think so. Oh, all right. Uh, my imagination is working overtime. Oh, all right. No, no, that wouldn't be all right, because if my imagination is working overtime, I don't want it to be bringing me you. What? What's wrong with me? I'm fun. <laughs> you're not You're not what I t- typically fantasize about. <laughs> well, somebody fantasizes about me. Somebody has to. There's got to be at least one person out there. Uh, it's, 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 it's probably, uh, <laughs> that will be getting cut from the episode. Oh no, that's, that's the, that's the opening. Oh God, don't do that to me, man. Back to the bin. I remember, you know, because I was picking up those books when they came out. You know, yep. you know, like before you were born. And uh, well, they weren't that they weren't that much before I was born. Were no, they? like right around the time, I guess. Yeah, I was. You, I was you, you and the new X Men were born around the same time. Yeah, and I'm the same height as Wolverine with the same amount of of body hair. So, but I, I, I specific, I have like specific memories of reading that. Uh, I guess it's issue 97 with the Sentinels. Okay, yeah. Uh, the one that starts off on uh, in time in, in what you call Rockefeller Center on Christmas at Christmas time. Yeah, yep. uh, you know, Stanley and Jack Kirby are there. Yeah, but I I remember like it blowing my mind seeing the uh, the shot where the where the claws came out of Wolverine's hands. Yeah, because up until then, you know, it was just assumed they were attached to the gloves and not part of him. Yeah, so, you know, so for, you know, I, I I'm. I don't know how you know, like guys like you, you know, you you always knew it was part of him. You know what I mean? So you yeah, that, yeah. That shock factor for me, I do remember it being like, oh my god, look at this! This is so cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I love that run. I've got what do I have? I got the first four essentials of uh yeah when it relaunched. That's like, it's interesting though, because I mean that was just the black and white art. But now having the the masterworks and being able to see it in color, it's oh my god, it's pretty. I have I have actually that entire you know not the not the later runs but uh, the entire run in the original issues purchased when they were new yeah uh, you know the Cockrum then through Byrne then the return of Cockrum and then into Paul Smith and that's about where I stopped <laughs> yeah it's and just... I liked Paul Smith it wasn't that I didn't like it it just uh, I, well actually I guess it went from Paul Smith to somebody else because I was still. I was still on board up to like around issue two, a little after issue two hundred. I think was when I fell off. Okay, see, so I think that's past where I've read in the essentials. But I pretty much have all of those, you know, purchased on on the newsstand or you know wherever I purchase new books at that point. Yeah. Um, I was actually into the X Men before that, like I before was, they were cool. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, because I was reading, you know, all the issues from, you know. When I first started buying, they were still in the reprint run in between the original issues and the new ones. Yep. And I was I was enjoying those, which is you know when you look back on them, some of them were really just painful to read. Uh, yeah. But some of the some of the early run is is not good. <laughs> when I was twelve, thirteen, fourteen years old, I loved that crap. Yeah. I mean, I can sit down. I have that first essential for the 
the Silver Age ones, and it's uh, I've read that through that thing so many times. It's like you realize how much of the X Men universe really is set up in those first like twenty five, twenty six issues. Mm-hmm. You know, like you Juggernaut and Xavier's backstory and Sentinels, Magneto. Yeah, oh, the ugly Sentinels, the little Sentinels. The ones are <laughs> the ones are only like eight feet tall, little bit with a giant head. Yeah. <laughs> And the numbers on them, right? Didn't they have the numbers on them? Yeah, yeah, they each had a number. Uh, I remember, like, I remember reading through uh, that, you know, that run the first time I read it. I really liked the issue when Magneto basically attacked them uh, surreptitiously. Like, he took out each one one by one, but you didn't see who it was that was doing it. And then it ends, the issue ends, and uh, I I don't remember if it was Jean Grey's parents or somebody else's parents were visiting the school. Yes. And he comes over and he opens the door. Yeah. I think it was jeans, yeah. That was some cool shit. So, I, you know, they had the uh, the 25 cent sale at my local store. Yep. I have now got copies of Sleepwalker numbers 2, 3, 4, <laughs> 5. Uh, excuse me, I don't have 5. I have 6, 7, 8, 9. Oh, so all the guest starring ones. <laughs> 10, 10, 11, 12. 13, Jesus. 14, 15. So from, well, you, you, from the first 15 through. issues, I'm only missing two. So you you pretty much have half the run. And, uh, I mean, 25 cents each. Yeah. Well, that's that's about what that book goes for. <laughs> yeah, well, it's funny. You know, like, they, they have they have their uh, back issue bin set up, and the books are, are all between $1 and $5 as far as the price on them. Yeah. But if you buy 10 it's $10. That's, that's, the, okay. that's the standard deal. Yeah, but then they did it. Those books were twenty five cents each, so I ran. Oh. I, I I bought like one hundred and fifty books. You know, there's not nothing wrong. With that was only like twenty bucks. Twenty five. Uh, well, one hundred fifty was like forty bucks. Uh, it's just, even still, you can't get one hundred fifty books for forty bucks now. But each one of these books is is labeled either three or four dollars. Nice. But I don't see where they were ever going to sell them for that amount. No. I mean, if it's if it's coming from ninety one to two thousand now, it's I mean, unless it's a key issue, it's not going to cost you anything. Yeah, well, you'd be crazy to pay. Well, the only way you pay something like that is if you, uh, you know, you have the whole run and you you're looking for one issue, yeah, and you find it somewhere. It's three bucks. You say, well, you know what? I'll pay three bucks for it just because I want to, I want to close yep. out the run. But other than that, never. Yeah, I just. <sighs> I can't even remember like the the last when, during my last gasp of real buying stuff. I think the last thing I spent money on, I think I got it for it was either forty dollars or sixty dollars. It was all of Crisis and every single tie-in and the indexes, and that was twelve years ago. And I was like, you know what? For that price, I, I have to buy this. No, did you see the thing that Chris Warden posted? Yeah, the uh, 1300 comics Three, or something. I think it was 3,000 books. 3,000, yeah, yeah. $700 they were asking. Yeah. I mean, it's impossible to say without looking to see what's in there. But, I mean, at that price, you're still talking, you know, pennies a book. What do you, maybe 20 cents a book? Yeah, and I'm sure you can counter on something like that. If you'd say, I'll do 500, get get 20 of us together to throw in for it and be like, hey, right, let's divvy these books up. Yeah, and, you, you know, you hope if you have, you know, a handful of decent ones in there, you're set. It's just stuff to read at that point. Who cares? You know? Because I'm sure most of them are probably reader copies. I mean, that yeah. picture didn't look like they were, you know, in the best condition. But at this, it, like, nowadays, it's like, I don't... 
even if I had the money to go out and buy like Amazing Fifteen, I'd like. What, uh, all right, so you so you put it in, you know, carbonite and throw it on your wall. It's like all right, it's nice. You can resell it later on if you need to, but I've got like four reprints of that issue. I can read anytime I want. Yeah, that's. I mean, and at this point, with the with with very very few exceptions, I don't see the wisdom in buying books as investments. Yeah, you know, sure. Some somebody comes along and they say they say, "Oh, I have Amazing Fantasy 15. I'll give it to you for a hundred bucks." So you know, okay, oh, yeah, I'm doing <clears> that. Let me go to an ATM. <laughs> yeah. But, but somebody says, I have this book that's, you know, when the price guy says it's worth 150 and I'll give it to you for 100 eh, you know what, I'm, I'm going to pass. Nah. Thank you. Nah. <laughs> Thanks for the offer. I appreciate you giving me the discount, but I'm going to pass. Yeah. It's just, you know, the likelihood of finding something. Like, I was, I was looking through, when I was at the store, I was looking through their more choice books. And I saw they had uh, Amazing Spider-Man 51, which I had. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> But it was it was it was marked at ninety dollars, and I was thinking, you know, if I ha- if I decided to sell that, where am I finding somebody to give me ninety dollars for it? Yeah, nowadays, unless it's a hardcore Spider-Man fan, you're not going to. And the only and the only way you're going to get any kind of real sales on books like that is if you, uh, you know, if you have if you have the the time to uh, to wait it out. You know, you're. Uh, yeah, you know, you you have a store and you put it in there and you wait until somebody comes along who you know the the right buyer comes along. You're not going to just find somebody easily if you if you're not a dedicated salesperson. Yeah, and it, I I think nowadays with books like that, I mean, you almost have to go and get them graded just for people to look at them because otherwise, you know, somebody's going to be like, I'll give you fifty bucks for it because it's not graded. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and even even on eBay, you're not you're not going to get a quick sale on something like that. No. And why the hell would you want to pay eBay the commission anyway? You put that shit on Craigslist and be like, 100 bucks or best offer, you know? And then you're not making your money back, so what's the point? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I tried to sell my entire comic collection for uh, money to go to Star Wars Celebration. I sold, like, I don't know, like 20, maybe 30 books total for maybe 50 bucks. And it was like, no one wanted to buy my whole collection. Nobody even wanted to buy that entire collection of Crisis. And I mean, that was, I was, I was, I was asking a hundred bucks for it. I was like, a hundred bucks, all of Crisis, everything from the original 85 and 86. Right. And somebody was like, I'll give you $25 for just the 12 issues of Crisis. I'm like, no. <laughs> I'll give you the, the other stuff for the 25 bucks and I'll keep the Crisis. Uh, no. Yeah, so I'm kind of glad I held, I'm, I'm glad I have that still. Actually, I don't think that one's ever going to go away just because it's it's important. It means something. Hello, <laughs> hey, hey, Luke, what's happening, buddy? Oh, not much. Uh, uh, I, I've got a, a real quick uh, dirty joke. Yeah, go ahead. Shoot, go for uh, it. So uh, this this guy and his wife they go to a, a nude beach, right? And the guy is uh, you know he's real he's real dumb. He goes and uh, he lays out in the sun on his back all day and he gets sunburned all. All over himself, including all over his junk, right? Yeah. And uh, so he's trying to sleep that night, and he's, he's so sunburned, he's so uncomfortable, just rolling around. He's like, "Oh God, oh God." So he's like, "Oh," and he, and he can't think of a way to get his, uh, you know, to relieve the the pain in his junk from the sunburn all over it. So he has a yep. flash of inspiration, in the middle of the night, and he gets up and he goes into the kitchen and he pours a big glass of milk and he sticks his junk in the milk. And his wife comes in and says, "Oh, so that's how you reload that thing." Oh, <laughs> Jesus, that's that's terrible. <laughs> I, was, I was telling Chris, uh, I got a package in the mail today, 
from uh, Mr. Ron Sadowski of Dinner for Geeks. And it says on it, don't open till BTP, BTTB recording. So I put, on the, okay. yeah, I put on the webcam so I can open it while we're recording here. And you guys will be uh, in on seeing what's in here. All right, you with it's me? the head of Jeff Doke. What's in the box? <laughs> always a possibility. Every time I think of Kevin Spacey now, all I can really think of is, hand me the keys, you fucking cocksucker. Yeah. <laughs> all right, you guys, you guys catching this? I'm catching it. It's a yeah. box. What's in the box? Okay, there's, there's, there is a letter. It's a ransom. Don't read it. Dear Paul, I just wanted to wish you a Merry Christmas and hope you have a wonderful New Year. I appreciated you allowing me to come on the show and trying my hand at synopsizing comics. As Dr. Bill has proven can be hard to do sometimes. Very, very painful. <laughs> if you ever need an extra hand, feel free to call on me. I direct this to you since we all know you're the true power behind the throne. All hail Scott. <laughs> you have bemoaned the fact that you don't get the swag. Uh, I do need better glasses here. Uh, an esteemed podcaster of your, of your ilk deserves. I hope to rectify this just a little since you also said that you don't have comics of the 1990s. I hope you will enjoy <laughs> With best wishes, Ron Sadowski. P.S. Thanks for the Christmas card. This puts you ahead of Rifen in sending me Yuletide greetings. Ah! I sent him one, too. Okay, now there's a secondary package here wrapped in Batman and Joker paper. Excellent. That I'm opening. If it starts to hiss, run away. All right. We start off with... uh, UFO Flying Sources from Whitman Comics. Ooh. Awesome. Mickey and Minnie Mouse. Nice. Walt Disney's Hey, that's cool. Ooh, the March Hare. <laughs> <laughs> he covered that on, uh, I don't know if you guys heard that one. Uh, yes, I remember that Assistant one. Just an editor's month. And we got an issue of ElfQuest. Ooh. ElfQuest was really cool. I was picking those up when they were first coming out in black and white. I think I have one issue of that floating around in my house. Conan the Barbarian, number nice. 116. That is not a 90s book. What is this one? Automatic Kafka. That, give that one to Bill. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm showing it to the microphone instead of showing it to the uh, webcam. Hardcore. Ooh. Shadow Man. These are Valiant books. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, Shadow Man's good stuff. All right, here's one definitely for an indie one show. Married with Children. <laughs> oh, my God. I would totally read that. The immortal, be 20 the immortal Iron Fist, number five. Ooh, very cool. War Man, part one of two. Blade of the Immortal. Young Dark Child. Dark Horse comics? As opposed to old Dark Child. If you know any of these, just shout yes. out to me. Motorhead. Uh, Motorhead was a Marvel UK book, wasn't it? Uh, it's Dark Horse here. Okay, no, I'm, I'm, thinking of, I'm thinking of something else then. I think I know what you're thinking of, and... and... I think I've seen what you're thinking of, but I'm not sure what it's called. Badger, which I think is like a Wolverine clone. Oh, Badger. <laughs> Dynamo Joe. Ooh. I don't know what that is. Punk X. Don't know what that no. is either. Open oh, Space. This looks interesting. It's a, some, some sort of Mar- Marvel graphics line. 
And then the all-important Torak Dinosaur Hunter. Number one? Is it number one? Is it, uh... I don't see a number on it. Oh, number uh, number ten. Uh, It's in a package with Exo Man of War, and then there's two others in there. It's the Super Value, or three others in there. Super Value 5 comic pack. Ooh. I would say this this is great, and I appreciate it really, Ron. The only problem is that he stuck much hair in here. <laughs> it just brings the whole thing down a level. <laughs> More like a March Hare across your ass. Oh, that's very cool. I really do appreciate that. Uh, oh, I, yeah, I finally got my first swag, too. I got it from Dave. I think I already mentioned that. Dave Atterbury sent me a book. What was that? The uh, oh, story cool. of the uh, Luke Skywalker. Story of Luke Skywalker yeah. with the Ralph McQuarrie It's Oh, it's so good. Cool. I don't know if that counts. The only swag I've ever Doesn't gotten. The, uh, the Captain Kirk I gave you count as swag? Swag? Yeah, but that wasn't sent to me. That was hand delivered. <laughs> <laughs> that should make it of greater. It just went quiet for me. I, maybe it was me. It's all your fault. Yeah, it's just all of a sudden. I won't leave that. I, I get told. I get told it enough. So. <laughs> By whom? Uh, work, home, people on the street. You know. I, I kind of welcome the counterpoint. So I, do I. No, I, I. I think it's kind of well. My, it's and and that's the thing. It's not. It's not even a. It's not even like a. Uh, you know. Oh my God, this was awful. It's because fine. I'll come out and say. I liked Guardians of the Galaxy quite a bit, but I don't think it's the be all end all that a lot of people seem to think it is. I think it's too jokey. I think it. The characters are, with the exception of Rocket, vastly different from the characters from the damn comic, because I was I read the DNA Guardians from Annihilation Conquest Star-Lord. Mm-hmm. So I was there on the ground floor when they were writing them. And it's like, okay, Drax does not behave that way. I don't care who's writing him. That's not Drax. Gamora doesn't act that way. Star-Lord doesn't act that way. Ronan the Accuser is so f***ing wrong, it's not even funny. But because we all want the movie to be successful, we just gloss over all that. And it's like, I'm, I, I would have loved to see Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning's go- Guardians. I didn't think we got Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning's Guardians other than Groot and Rocket. So, you know, but that's me. But as I said, I still, I still, I still really dug the film. But it's like I'm, I get tired of the stuff on, especially on the Facebook, where it's like, you know, it's like, oh, you, it's like any and no, will brook no negotiation about how awesome Guardians was and how it's perfect. It's like I'm sorry, it's not the case. And 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 that the real stupid thing is, is when Annihilation Conquest was coming out, I was the guy saying, hey, y'all, you should be reading this Marvel Cosmic stuff, and being told Marvel Cosmic sucks so (laughs) it strikes me as a bit of cognitive dissonance (laughs) well i i was in on marvel cosmic uh when when annihilation was coming out as well in fact i was one of the voices telling scott hey you should be reading this shit um right i think it was just us (laughs) and 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 in fact i one of my first ever podcasts was doing a uh a look back with uh bob retall at the original guardians of the galaxy books when they first appeared in marvel superheroes so, I mean, I was yeah. on board from the beginning. And I don't disagree with you that they're portrayed differently than they were in the comics. Uh, but I did think the movie was awesome. I, I loved it. I'm not going to sugarcoat that for yeah, a second. I, 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 I mean, I'm not – I really enjoyed it. When I watched it with my wife, it was it was funny watching her watch it because she's like, why is there a talking tree and a talking raccoon? I said, because Shut up, it, woman! it is. <laughs> I'll, I'll reiterate what I said earlier that I want to continue – to live in my house so um but uh no but i mean i really enjoyed it but to me i you know i, I don't think it i don't i didn't like it better than any of the three iron mans or cap two well, cap or two you know or avengers down. so i mean it was 
And it's and the, it's the problem when you know you're kind of damning something with faint praise. It's like, well, it's not as good as these other fantastic movies. It's it no gets joke. back to. It's no Jaws, exactly. Hang on, I gotta let the dog back in. <laughs> oh, I've seen your dogs. They're tiny. Don't they have a pee pee pad in the other room? Well, they're t- tiny. That's why they have tiny bladders. Yeah, but I mean, my family's got a tiny dog. He pees in the house on a little pee pee pad. Most my, of the time. Uh, my mother in law used to have a Pomeranian. I thought you were going to say your mother in law used that to was do a that. litter box train. I, uh, I, I never mind being the the voice of dissidents uh, on, on these things, though. If, if you remember, there have been a few shows where uh, we did the movie reviews, and I was the one voice saying, eh, I didn't think it was that great. <laughs> so, Marine, you see, but that. Past. What? <laughs> That's when Chris started to call me Doctor No. Yes. Yep. So I, I, you know, it's I'm on board with you. It's it's one of my biggest criticisms of the internet age, is there that is when, no when we ground. discuss things, there is no mediocrity. Everything is the best ever or the worst ever. And and you get into these communal groupthink situations also. Uh, I see it. I see it all the time in. Um, like uh, on the, the G.I. Joe board I frequent is Histank, histank.com. And all these guys, they're all, in a, majority of them are in a similar demographic. So they latch on to a certain opinion, and that becomes the truth, whether it has any basis in reality or not. You know, there, there was um, a great example is, oh, Rise of Cobra was a failure. It's like, no, you look at Box Office Mojo, Rise of Cobra made a ton of money. No, it was a failure because we didn't like it because it wasn't, it wasn't a, uh, a two-hour version of a Larry Hama comic. And so, like, and 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 any any true fan knows it was terrible. It's like, well, Larry Hamill liked it. That doesn't matter. That's not true. It's like, really? Because he went on record and said it. It's like, I I can show you the recording on a, he did on a, an interview where he said he liked it. It's like, that no, doesn't matter. It was a failure. It's like, okay, keep, keep thinking, hey, guys. I liked it a lot. I loved it. Oh my god, that movie's awesome. And Retaliation is just as fun. Retaliation's even good. better. I haven't watched well, Retaliation yet. I, I and I have never been a GI Joe guy. Yeah. So I don't know if my opinion is is as valid with regard to the quality of the adaptation because I, I you know I I'm not really familiar with the source material, but I enjoyed it when I watched it. Yeah. Do you do you yeah. like a little bit of uh, super heroics in your uh, warfare movies? Then you'll like it. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I saw I saw Rise of Cobra and I and yeah. I enjoyed it. I didn't think it was a great movie, but I I enjoyed it. See, yeah. I, the, I, I mean, go ahead, Chris. I I liked it. I think I thought they pulled from just about every different version of joe that was out there to do it i it, yeah no was it the comic book series no and honestly yeah. you can't do that comic book series nowadays that comic book series is such a product of post-vietnam and the reagan era that there's no yeah. way you could adapt it now unless you made it you know in the in the time that that it happened you'd have to make right. it a, a period piece and that's and not the, gonna and, fly and the stuff that they did take from the comics plays wonderfully the stuff yep. with storm shadow and snake eyes Yep. and all that and that gets and, and they follow up on it in retaliation and it's in and it's it even further sticks very closely to the comics as yeah. far as the you know uh, who all was involved in it so yep. like i said i mean uh, I, I i've heard people say oh well gi joe is becoming hasbro's b movie franchise i'm like if a b movie franchise produces movies like retaliation and not movies like age of age of extinction i'm all for uh, it i'm all uh, for it uh, being the b franchise <laughs> age of extinction is the best transformers live action movie I haven't seen Age of Extinction, so I, I can't comment. But my my what I I guess I didn't say that right. What I meant was is by giving Retaliation a smaller budget than Rise of Cobra had, and then a smaller budget than the Transformers films had, it forced them to kind of make you know focus more on the action rather than on the effects. 
you know? Yep. So what what are the set pieces that are memorable in Retaliation? They're uh, like the fight on the side of the mountain or yeah, Cobra seizing is... Washington. Oh, my God. Uh, the Hiss tanks rolling down Pennsylvania Avenue. It's like, and here's my money, you know? Yep. <laughs> Take my money! You know, Transform- so stuff like that, it suits the product better. I'm sorry, go ahead, Paul. I was going to say Transformers, I have a similar... Uh experience that I do to G.I. Joe. I never read the source material, which was uh, actually addressed in uh, an email that, from you that we'll probably read on the next show uh, yes. when it came up in our 1984 review. But the ni- the first Transformers movie, I really enjoyed watching, but the next two after that, I, not so much. Yeah, ditto. <clears throat> yeah, I haven't I mean, seen the fourth one yet. I, I liked the first live-action Transformers because I, I, it was funny because I actually saw that with my wife and my parents in the theater. My parents were visiting, and, and we went to the movies. We saw Transformers, and my dad knows that I was a big Transformers fan. And he goes, well, how, how was that as an adept? Was that like the old show? And I said, no, but. I said, if you take the broadest scope of Transformers, that these two factions of warlike robots from another planet come to our planet and have to continue their war, it was a pretty good adaption of that, you know? <laughs> But, that, but that's that's the general gist of Transformers. It's like on the details. No, the details were all different. But that I don't, I don't mind. There's been so many different versions of Transformers over the years. You know, uh, from G1 to Armada to Robots in Disguise to Prime to Animated. Uh, you know, there, there's there's to the video games. There, there's tons of different continuities out there, and they all exist in a multiverse, like like Marvel or DC. So it's like that a movie one's just another universe. You know. But that's oh, that's a, kind of what we're I comic book nerds for Jesus Christ. I mean, <laughs> but that's what I go to with the Guardians. Yeah, it's not the versions of the characters that we've seen in the comics. But as far as I'm concerned, they were well done. They were enjoyable, and I'm good with it. Yeah. And 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 I did like I said I was on board with the earlier versions. It's not like a, you know I never read. It's not like Transformers or GI Joe where I had no familiarity with the source material. I do know the source material, but I was right. cool with it. It didn't bother me at all, uh, and I, I really enjoyed it. And I. I just, you know, I was wondering at the time, I was thinking, you know, what is somebody who has no background in this thinking? And then I looked over and, and saw the huge smile on my daughter's face, and I said, okay. <laughs> Apparently, people with no background, they're enjoying it. Yeah. yeah like cousins... I said, I mean, it, the quality wins out, you know? It's a good movie. Yeah. There's no mm-hmm. doubt about it. My, my complaints are niggles at best. <laughs> niggles yeah. from a, com- a complaining nerd on the internet, so. Oh, you're one of those, huh? <laughs> It doesn't matter. Cap and Planet of the Apes are the two best movies of the year. Planet of the Apes is weird because it was one. I loved it when I saw it. I still like it, but my opinion isn't quite as high as when I first saw it. It is one that, like, when I thought about it more, it just seemed a little like, okay, you know, they didn't do as much as it felt like they were doing. Uh, I'll disagree with you there. I I loved uh, everything that it did, and I loved the setup for what we're going to get next whatever it is i don't care maybe there'll be mutants maybe there won't be there'll probably be way less humans i want to see could be an all-out war i don't know i hell yeah i want to see mutants who doesn't want to see mutants i reveal my inmost (laughs) self to my god if they put that in mutants i want them (laughs) worshiping the atomic bomb yeah if you if you're gonna put mutants you kind of have to have them worshiping the atomic bomb absolutely otherwise why why are you bothering you know it's yeah like get off the pot yeah, I agree. But, you know, and, and again, it's it's similar to what Luke is saying. It's not that I disliked it. I did like it. I enjoyed it. I already have the Blu-ray. Uh, but it just wasn't the it wasn't quite up to the level that I thought Rise of the Planet Apes hit. Ooh, interesting. I, 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 I think it's, I think it I think it surpassed it. 
Yeah, see, I haven't had a chance to go to see um, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes yet. With uh, Well, you're going to have a tough time going to as, see As you now. guys know with my... Uh, well, you never know. You know, probably could. Uh, I, we've got a we've got a really cheap theater up in Spartanburg, and uh, they they show this some... is Spartanburg. Oh, crap. So, <laughs> yeah, Spartan, Box, good old man. Spartanburg, South Carolina, uh, home Box. of uh, Wofford Un- the Wofford University Terriers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The pride Whatever. of the pride of Spartanburg. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we might as well bring this show in now. And uh, anybody listening, I am Paul Spataro, and welcome to Back to the Bins. As you could hear, I am joined today by Scott Gardner and Bill Robinson. Oh, wait. I am joined today by Christopher Tyler and Luke Giaconetti of various and sundry podcasts that you're probably familiar with on the Two True Freaks Network. Say hi, guys. Hi, guys. Hi, guys. Hi. This is because nobody who's <laughs> normally on the show wanted to play with me tonight. Slackers. So I had to go out and find new friends. I'll be your best friend. <laughs> you found oh, those yep. who watch horror movies. That's what you found. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, it's half the vault. I didn't even think of that. I mean, during Assistant Editors Month, we had seventy-five percent of the vault on an episode of Back to the Bins, and not one of us brought a horror book. That's true. That's a bad job by you, Scott. <laughs> was it yeah. Sean was on with you because Chris was on with? I was Dave, on with right? Dave. Yes, that was. So, yeah, that the, was... the entire vault yeah, it was... managed to be heard, but just not together. Yes. Yes, it was Honeywell, Sean, and myself, and then uh, then uh, Chris, like you said, we are. All... Yeah, I'm trying to remember. You brought the book with the Fantastic Four and the Hulk. I uh, know. Oh. Yeah, Sean. Yeah, Sean brought Fantastic Four, where they they tracked down the Hulk. I brought Jack Kirby's Atlas number one. Oh yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and Honeywell brought the Honeywell brought the, uh, the guy paying for getting it. the hooker. Yeah, paying, um, paying Chester for Browns. It. Yeah, paying for it. And, uh, and I'm trying Chris, to remember what what you and Dave brought. Uh, uh, well, Chris, Chris, Chris's book from then plays directly into what we're doing now because we are we have decided to add a semi regular feature on the show called uh, Heroes Sleepwalker Moment. Yeah, <laughs> it's a moment, just a moment. Because he did Sleepwalker number one in that episode, and then he came on a few weeks back and did Sleepwalker number two. As we <laughs> record this now, uh, that episode will be airing this Saturday. Saturday. And what book do you have for us today, Chris? <laughs> Take a wild guess. Uh, it is not Apollo Smile. <laughs> I was like, oh, oh, is it is it Dark Hawk Annual Number Two? Uh, it is not. See, I collected Sleepwalker. My my best friend had every issue with Dark Hawk. So there's always the two guys together. <laughs> That's just the way it was. He also had every issue of uh, Madcap. So <laughs> hey, what does that say? Madcap, gotta love. <sighs> What can you do? It's the '90s, man. It's a playground. Yeah. <laughs> playground sometimes of a playground of varying quality. Uh, yeah, <laughs> especially as the '90s went on. But uh, <sighs> you guys have any other uh, comic things to uh, to discuss before we jump into a book? I uh, have a uh, a minor comic book nerd complaint. Go for it. <laughs> Is it does um, it have to do with the Guardians movie? No, it has nothing to do with the Guardians movie. All right, go ahead. Um, thank, oh, thank God. Uh, I, I <laughs> live to fight another day. Uh, my good friend uh, Derek Crabb of the Fanholes podcast, he posted something on Facebook earlier today as uh, as we're recording, where apparently in the um, the current storyline in the Spider-Man series is called Spider-Verse, yeah. and it features all the different Spider-Men from all the different multiverses all coming together. And one of the things that this story has done is it's brought in Spider-Men from other media. And um, 
and one of the ones that you know when when uh, Derek and I had recorded an episode of uh, Fanholes, we had talked about, oh, are they going to bring in the Tokusatsu version of Spider-Man, Spider-Man, and his giant robot Lepardon? And apparently they Hard did on? bring in Lepardon, <laughs> and then had one one of the bad guys tear Lepardon apart and rip his arm off. And so I'm like, yeah, that's pretty friggin' lame right there. It's like, hey, this thing I know nothing about must suck. Maybe they just wanted like, to show I'm how sorry, powerful. The, maybe they just scary. wanted to show how powerful the bad guy was by ripping a robot's arm off. Yeah, but if you're gonna do that, at least get the scale right because they had Lepardon being barely the twice as tall as the guy. He's like, he's a giant. He's a giant robo. Okay, he's friggin' huge. He's fighting. He fights giant monsters. He's at least get your scale right. He is kind of like Gigantor or Tetsujin. In 28, as he's known in Japan, Iron Man 28. But uh, yeah, it's it, that that just ticked me off because it's like because the joke I had made was when Marvel did Superior Spider-Man, it's like they really wanted to be ballsy. They'd bring in you know make a uh, you know Superior Spider-Man, you know, Doc Ock, Spidey, build Lepardon. He's a robotics expert, right? So they finally bring in Lepardon and they use it for a stupid throwaway. I believe Doc Ock's yeah. original expertise was in radioactive materials. Yes. But then he, he's, but now the the whole thing, him and Mysterio are both now robotics guys, because of course. Doc Ock built all the little what do they call them, spider bots or whatever that he used during um, what was it, Spider Island? Mm-hmm. I don't know how That's I know this. Since I haven't. That was during I, the. Uh... I could, I have not read Spider Man literally since the '90s, so I don't know how I know this. <laughs> well, the, whole, the whole Doc Ock thing was was really good. I've I've heard that it's. Good. I know. Uh, I think um, the Leylands both said they really enjoyed it, and I tend to trust their opinion when it comes to Spider-Man. I would agree, and uh, <laughs> Andy and I have discussed it, and we, we we were in agreement on it. So I, I'll speak for him just as far as this goes, and say, yeah, it, it, that was a good run. It's all right. <laughs> <laughs> but they, yeah, they they uh, they seem to be uh, killing off a lot of mass media Spider-Man. Uh, yeah, in there, they killed off the Spider Friends. Yeah, sure. they, what? The Spider Friends. Wait, wait. Like, is Amazing Friends? Yep. Yes. God damn it. But I think uh, I think Ms. Just... Lion got away. Oh, fuck Ms. Lion. The eighth little superhero. Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Now, I'm guessing you're reading this. Is 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 Peter Porker a a significant player? I in don't it? believe he has made an appearance as yet. When he when he does, that will be when I find the issues somehow free. <laughs> well, since you brought him up, let me let me th- let me throw a question at you guys. You know, Sony's having all this, all these issues with their. They want to make the Spider-Man films into into like a universe, like Marvel has done, and like DC is doing. Mm-hmm. You know, and and as Fox has done, you know, so they they want to do this, but they keep having all this trouble. You know, their Sinister Six movie is stalled out. The Venom movie may or may not happen. You know, depending on which week it is, Amazing Spider-Man three is either happening or it's being delayed. Is it me, or does it seem like you're leaving money on the table, not hooking up with DreamWorks or one of the other animation studios that's not Disney Pixar, and making an animated Peter Porker the Spectacular Spider-Ham movie? I they would don't have know my if they money. have the rights to that. But he's a, but he, he's a Spider-Man character. He's, but, a, he's a derivative of Spider-Man. I would assume yes. that Sony would have the rights to make Spider-Ham. I don't know that Sony has a right to make an animated movie of Spider-Man, because uh, Marvel is producing the animated Spider-Man TV series. Ooh, that's a good point. So there might well, be something where live action against as opposed to animation is uh is a, a distinction in their uh, ownership rights. That's a good point. I didn't think of that because I know that I know that in in certain legal senses. Remember a couple of years ago when the uh, the screen not 
not the Creators Guild, the Writers Guild had their big strike, and mm-hmm. all, all the all the live action shows went on hiatus. Yeah, yeah. Except the reality shows, because you know the difference between a reality show and a non-reality show was the writers are non. Um, and at the time, I remember there was a big nerd concern about, oh, what about you know Teen Titans and Justice League? It's like, no, no, they're the right people who write cartoons don't belong to the Writers Guild. They belong to this other guild. So your cartoons will still come out. Yeah. Have no fear. <laughs> still, I still think that if you want to make Spider-Man into a quote-unquote universe at some point that that would be a, a good way i think i mean look at big hero 6 you know that you can do an animated superhero film and and get kids and adults into it and spider had a good property for that because you could do it and and make it you know like, like the old marvel tales spider ham stories which were just funny animal stories but they were a little subversive they had something for the older readers in there as well they'd have either references to to marvel stories or you know jokes that would go over the younger readers heads that sort of thing so oh, just hey, something i've more... always, always, always more... kind of kicked around in my head yeah one more question about this spider-verse thing is the silent spidey from spidey stupid stories in there i don't think so i haven't i've only seen a little bit of it to this point but i've i've heard quite a few people talking about it so i'm a little bit you know a, a little bit of my knowledge is just coming from others uh, I, I might have but to I haven't heard down. anything about him being in there. That would be interesting. Yeah, hopefully, he sure hopefully he doesn't die. <laughs> would his sidekick be easy reader? <laughs> Doctor Bill's not here. We can't do that. Apparently, they're trying to do something where they're going to have a they have a universe where Gwen Stacy is Spider Woman, and they're <sighs> talking about doing an ongoing. Yeah, talk, that. Just, yeah. Didn't she just get an ongoing something? What's that? Spider Gwen doesn't Spider Gwen have an ongoing now? Either it started or it's going to start. I'm not sure. I haven't seen it yet. Okay, because it, again, it's uh, I, it was, I, I thought I was reading that now there's uh, the Spider Woman ongoing, there's the Silk ongoing, and then a the Spider Gwen ongoing. It's like the number of Spider Women have blown up in the last uh, three months. <sighs> not necessarily the for the from better. Force Works <clears throat> still doesn't have a book. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't know, man. <laughs> When are they going to bring back the Spider-Woman who wore the, the Venom-inspired outfit? When are they going to bring her back? That's what I'm saying. That's uh, Her name's Arachne now, isn't it? When they brought back Jessica, I think they changed um, her name. What was her name? Uh, I don't remember. I don't care. Uh, uh, she, she, I know she out of the city of Denver. And she was in the West Coast Adventures, and she was in Force Works, and uh, she got toy on the Iron Man toy line from Toy Biz. Yeah, well, she was in the Iron Man cartoon. <sighs> I don't know, yeah. man. I can't remember her name now. Oh, well. <laughs> All right, we got. I'll yell at yell at a middle night and concern my you know my wife from Adam. Yeah. All right. At this All point, right. I'd say we're ready to go into a book. <laughs> yes. You yeah. Let's do, do it. You want to jump into Sleepwalker first? <clears throat> I will happily jump into Sleepwalker first. Let me just open the issue for our reference. All right. So I like to say I do like any do like any comic which shares its title with a Megadeth song, so I can get behind that. Yeah, but this predates it. It does, yeah. <laughs> but that's okay. Yeah. All right. My, my friggin' notes want to rush, 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 rush. Why are they not opening? This is bullshit, Microsoft. Come on, Muttley. All right, here we go. I'm just glad Pete Puma didn't chime in there. <laughs> yeah, I would do it, but it would give me a headache. Yeah, a lot of lumps, a whole lot of lumps. I mean, what, what? I mean, come on, what else are we gonna do? We got nowhere else to go tonight. Oh, I got nowhere else to go. I got nowhere else to go. 
I got nowhere else to go. I got nothing else. Thank you, gentlemen. I'm, I'm the man. All right. Sleepwalking number three, published by Marvel Comics. The cover date was August 91. The on-sale date was June 11th, 1991. Cover price, one whole dollarini. Page count, 32. Back when you actually got about 32 pages of actual story. The writer and colorist was Bob Budiansky. The artist for the cover and the interior was Brett Blevins. And the letterer was Chris Iliopoulos. So... Our cover is uh, Sleepwalker and Rick on a black, boring background, surrounded by a cast of Marvel's finest. And uh, Rick is saying, but this is only a dream, right? And Sleepwalker is saying, tell that to them. Um, so we have no idea what the hell's going on, but it looks like most of the Marvel universe is about to beat both their asses. Uh, so we go to our splash page. <laughs> which is magnificently rendered in comparison to the rest of the issue, where we get uh, a chick who kind of looks like Alyssa Conover, Rick's, Rick's squeeze, uh, being grabbed by a big green alien bug-eyed-looking thing on an alien planet. And it says, Theater of Madness. Um, so, uh, you know, before we even get into it, I want to say the last issue... Uh, you know, Rick was uh, bemoaning the fact that the creature that came out at night when he was asleep was pure evil, and he'd you know never get a good night's sleep again. And his life was over. Um, okay, so if you were sleepy, that splash page will will wake you up. Um, and uh, you know, the the chick on there looks like a knockoff of Barbarella, and she's wearing just enough to cover the baby feeders and her pudenda, while uh, you know. <laughs> That's 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 what it is. I mean, look but, at it. But also wearing knee highs on top of that. <laughs> yeah, it looks like she stole it from Sleepwalker. Actually, they're not quite up to the knee. They're not quite hooker boots, really. Um, they, they're close enough. She's got. She's actually. She's kind of got the upper calf high socks and then like little Peter Pan boots on. Yeah, they have, they have little pixie shoes. Pixie. And it must be cold on that set. That's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> Um, oh, I said set. Okay, that that leads into that was kind of a pointed comment. Cuts right through you. Um, (laughs) Okay, so I mentioned (laughs) yeah, or uh, Cockrum. Cockrum used to do the same thing with Storm. Uh, Okay, so (laughs) so while this chick who looks like Alyssa is getting groped by the big green alien. Uh, she throws a small bomb at his feet while he grabs her, and someone yells, cut. So, yes, it is Alyssa, and she's helping out Rick and his filmmaking friends uh, while they're, you know, they're doing their student film. Um, and uh, as soon as the camera, you know, as soon as the, the director yells, cut, she instantly goes back to bitch face. Uh, look at the panel. <laughs> That's what it is. And uh, Alyssa gives Rick a hard time about being in his movie because uh, she was glad that he wanted to be a part of it, and that but that was before he started falling asleep and not really paying attention to her. So uh, they all watched the footage of what they just filmed, and uh, Rick blew it. Uh, his nap means that he did not get the footage they needed of uh, uh, her throwing the little smoke bomb at the monster's feet. And now they don't have another uh, smoke bomb, and they don't have the money, yada, yada, yada. So all this whole time, Rick is musing to himself in classic Stanley style about how his life is circling the drain. 
when all of a sudden Sleepy appears on the movie screen and uh, Rick's all like, oh, he's not in our movie. What's going on? And Sleepwalker says that he needs to talk to him and he figures that he'll use the idea of a movie to relay to him who he is and what's going on. He asks Rick to indulge him and not to not to take the dream seriously because if he does, he will no longer it will no longer be a dream, but a dream that can cause him harm if he lets the uh, the images and uh, you know mess with them and it'll it'll mess with his subconscious. So Sleepwalker starts narrating about who Rick is and he shows him his family and his dog. His dog's name's Rambo, which is awesome. And Rick gets surprised by this. And uh, lo and behold, Rick uh, Rambo jumps off the movie screen into Rick's lap, and he's Rick grabs his uh, his leash, and Rambo starts just hauling ass with him, and he's really you know he's pulling Rick out of the dream theater that he's in and into the bowels of his own subconscious. Uh, Sleepwalker tells him he has to let go of his uh, link to to Rambo, and uh, as soon as Rick does that mentally. He's back in the seats of the Dream Theater, and Sleepwalker continues the exposition. Rick gets all pissy at him for ruining ruining his life, but Sleepwalker throws it right back at him and says, "You, you need you need to wait till the till the movie's over before you say anything else." Uh, and then Sleepwalker tells us, the reader and Rick, who he is and where he's from. He's essentially the Dream Police. Cue the song. A uh, <laughs> a Sleepwalker, a denizen of the mindscape which borders all sentient beings' minds. It's full of strange and mysterious beings, and the sleepwalkers guard it. They will never enter a person's mind, but they try to stop malevolent forces from invading uh, those minds with the help of their imaginators, which is the gold star badge that Sleepwalker had on uh, his left breast back in issue one. You know, the thing that rips off of him. So we finally get to the why all this is going on with Rick see there's this evil lurker of the mindscape that sleepwalker says you know you really can't pronounce it but i'll call him cobweb for your benefit and uh he's tussled with uh sleepwalker and, and, and cobweb have tussled many times before and sleepwalker always stops him from entering an innocent's mind and he, and he banishes him to part of the mindscape with the imaginator and uh well he kind of needs to every time because once cobweb is in a, a mind his presence will feel like a comfort as he slowly drives you insane so we see what cobweb looks like he's kind of a goopy desiccated stringy thing uh with a hollow set of eyes and sort of a mouth looks and he's totally uh, there you go it all yeah. comes back to rom uh so <laughs> sorry to interrupt no that's all right. that, that's all right that's why we're here uh so they go toe to toe and sleepwalk is battling with them in the in you know on the screen in the dream and Rick sees that Cobweb is setting a trap for Sleepwalker. So Rick's getting too involved in, in what's going on in the dream. He's just supposed to be paying attention. So uh, Cobweb in the in the movie uh, attacks Rick because he's getting too pulled into it. And Sleepwalker doesn't know how he's, how he's going to stop him because Cobweb is being culled from Sleepwalker's memory, not Rick's. Rick asks if it's still his dream, which Sleepwalker affirms. So Rick calls for help. So, what do you get when you call for help in the Marvel Universe? Alright, this is where we get the cover image from. Uh, suddenly, a bunch of Marvel heroes from various teams show up ready to help Rick. And I've conveniently listed them all. Cap, Iceman, Beast, Archangel, Colossus, Wolverine, Storm, Thing, the Fantastic Four, Iron Man, Thor, Kitty Pride, She-Hulk, Wasp, and there's one broad in the back that I have no idea who the hell it is and I really don't care. 
Um, so there you I go. Think that's, that's crystal from the Inhumans. You're no, talking crystal, on the, the first. <coughs> not crystal. I'm sorry, Cersei. It could be Cersei. It could also be uh, Cersei was, of the Avengers. What was the, what was the girl from Alpha Flight? Talisman. Uh, I don't even know. Nobody, but Rick says he calls the Avengers. Yeah, Avengers X Factor. The, the girl behind Iceman is Cersei. Oh, All right. Good. All right, so mark it but, down. Cersei. I'm actually going to change that. I think she was Avenger around that. Yeah, uh, well. Yeah, the timing should be about right for that. Yeah, 91, whatever. All right, so so it's Cersei. There we go. Fact bomb. All right. Um, so. Oh, man, I forgot my notes around it. All right, so um, <laughs> there's a line that Sleepwalker drops here, which is straight up Stan Lee from the 60s. Sleepwalker looks at the mall and goes, by the psychic storms of Cerebrum. I'm like, if that wasn't meant for Doctor Strange, I don't know what is. Uh, so now a bunch of cameos are ready to help Rick, and Cobweb seems to have disappeared. And of course, being a Marvel comic, Wolverine and the Thing only see a big green monster there, and in typical Marvel fashion, they're ready to attack Sleepwalker because he's, you know, the guy that's not them. And, uh, <laughs> and they do, and Rick pleads for them to stop. Um, while Sleepwalker is handling the dream heroes, Cobweb starts whispering to Rick, playing on his fears about how all of this is Sleepwalker's fault. Rick remembers Sleepwalker's description of Cobweb and figures out he needs to stop all this fracas in his dream. Uh, you know, he's thinking about the thing. It'll seem like a comfort when Cobweb's in your mind. Um, so he realizes this, and as soon as he does, he slips back into the seats of the dream theater, and he invites the, the heroes there to watch the rest of the movie with him while Sleepwalker finishes the story. So, they do. Sleepwalker gets fooled. Uh, there's a nice little bit where uh, Logan's lighting up a cigar, and She-Hulk turns to him and says, <laughs> you can't smoke in the theater, and he just replies, stuff it, lady. I mean, that's classic Wolvie right there. Um, too bad it's you know, only in a dream. So, um, okay, so the uh, battle continues, and Sleepwalker gets fooled by Cobweb during the most recent entanglement. And Cobweb willingly forces Sleepwalker into an innocent's mind, which is a big faux pas for the Sleepwalkers. And it uh, traps him there. We then get nods to issue one, where Sleepwalker is in Rick's dream, and Rick sees himself removing the Imaginator from Sleepy's chest, causing him to be trapped in his mind when he's awake. The movie ends, and the dream heroes depart, and Rick, now realizing that Sleepwalker is essentially a cop, gives him his blessing and a handshake. Uh, and, you know, he let, he says he'll let uh, Sleepwalker, who wants to hunt crime while Rick sleeps, uh, he gives him the okay on that. And uh, in the meantime, Sleepwalker's going to look for the lost Imaginator in the corner of Rick's uh, teenage noggin. And uh, that's about it. Should I put it, be putting a cricket sound effect in? <laughs> you you can. It's it, I mean this is seriously like it's the whole issue is exposition. Yeah, but it was <laughs> it was pretty well. It was it, it was entertaining exposition. That's the way I would say. It, it is especially when you know nowadays every, it, it's closer to something that you'd get nowadays where you, you you know the first issue drops you in the middle of the story. It's just bam, it's happening. But we don't get. I mean, you know, Rick doesn't get to know what's going on until issue three, which is something that would never have been done before the 90s, probably. Um, yeah. Omega the Unknown. Okay, well, that, I haven't read that. Steve Gerber. Well, that that's what I was going to say, is that didn't, um, and please correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, but I, I want to say that 
when when you covered issue number one, wasn't this a concept that Budiansky had come up with in the late 70s or so? And he just that's, didn't get an opportunity to do it? That's what he claims. And I mean, there's really no reason to disbelieve him. But mm-hmm. I mean, you never know. I mean, I mean, Lucas Be- says he's had six Star Wars movies planned from the beginning, too. But who the hell knows? Well, I mean, I, I mean, but in, given that, given that statement from Bob Budiansky, and reading this, I, I mean, I really got a definitely like, like Paul said, a, a mid '70s Marvel Bronze Age Steve Gerber sort of feel from this, from the, you know, both from the, uh, you know, the idea of, of this bizarre world existing just on the, uh, you know, in the border of your own mindscape, you know, the strange creatures and denizens that uh, exist in it. You know, just the uh, all the crazy visuals and all that. I, I really enjoyed this because even though, yeah, it's, it's a issue long, you know, exposition. We're not. It's not like they're telling us stuff that we already know. This is stuff that this this is the background. We're yeah. just like Rick. We don't have a depth of knowledge. No, which, not, and now we're learning. So it's not. It doesn't yeah, play I, off as an info dump. It, the fact that it, Rick doesn't have the knowledge also kind of gives the exposition purpose. It does, and it, it, it definitely works that way. I mean, it's and it's about time this guy got some sleep because over the course of these three issues, he looks like absolute crap. I mean, it, it, so I mean that's one thing that that's been pretty decent about it is I mean you really feel like this guy has not slept. Hmm. It's uh, about, like I said, I thought it was entertaining. I, I, I so far I'm enjoying the series. This is a series that I really had virtually no familiarity with. So you're pulling me along with you on this one. All right. Uh, and I'm, I'm enjoying the ride so far. That's that's what I would say. Yeah. I, 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 I've, I've read a, an issue here and there of Sleepwalker. You know, again, I was I was buying comics in the 90s. I was more the Darkhawk guy than the Sleepwalker guy, but I've read a few issues of Sleepwalker, and I've, and I've generally liked it. This one I thought was just really good. I, this real concise, you know, encapsulation of the character and what, what his motivations are, what he does, what he does. Yeah. Which, you know, to I mean, know our, the, uh... oh, still there, Luke? Yeah, I'm here. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Chris. Uh, it's, it's a, it's, it's, it's important because, I mean, later on, there's twists and turns with everything about the sleepwalkers, but that's near the end of the run. Um, and, you know, I, you have to wonder if it's planned. I won't spoil anything. Uh, but it, I mean, it's important to get all these cards on the table now, um, just so that you can, and, and part of the reason why I like this book is that it really is, you can trace exactly, you can trace the 90s in this book about how a good idea starts off as a good idea and is one way. And by the time it finishes, it's completely wrapped up in everything else that was going on with the company, um, mostly to its detriment. Not all the time, but to a degree. I mean, you know, by the time we get there, it'll it'll be interesting to see what, what other people think, too. Um yeah, I mean, this issue, again, art is not its not great. I mean, that splash page is awesome. You, you will not see Alyssa look better in this entire run than that splash page, and part of it's the outfit. Um, but it's so inconsistent. I mean, it seems like Budiansky, uh, no, I'm sorry, Brett Blevins excels when he doesn't have to do the mundane stuff. Um, you know, I, I think if this guy had the, inkling, the time for a, not do a monthly book, if he could do like a pet project, you know he'd just want to channel uh, Ditko, Doctor Strange. I mean, that's yeah. that's the vibe that I'm getting. And he's just he probably could do it, but I don't think he's given the opportunity to in this book. That being said, I I still I like all the the whack when there's wacky stuff going on. I love it, 
like those panels where they're showing the other sleepwalkers, none of them look really the same. Some are really tall and even lankier than our main sleepwalker, and some are kind of pudgy. Um, and one's got boobies. Does one have boobs? One's got the boobies, yep. Oh, okay, because I think the female one does show up later on. Um, well, it, it doesn't look like there's a lot of ways to tell them apart other than the boobies. Oh, yeah, I can see. Yep. Yep, yep, she's yep. got she's got the burthen hips also there. Yeah, yeah she, yes, does. she does. You're right. So she does have a little bit of the female anatomy there. And all the male sleepwalkers. She's got the, the female bitch face going. <laughs> yeah, she does. Actually, that's the that's I need a cigarette face right there. <laughs> but it's like, and then all the sleepwalkers have the lower anatomy of a Ken doll. So whatever. What are you gonna do? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But uh, not the greatest. I, I like the design of Cobweb. He will be rendered actually better later on, and I, and I don't believe by uh, Brett Blevins. I believe it's the next guy who comes on who really kind of takes him to another level. Um, but, I mean, we're really still at, like, the tip of the iceberg. Um, after Now that they've laid all the cards out on the table, we get we kind of go back to more of the sort of the zany 60s vibe. Um, you know, I mean, I'll just I'll read the, the ending caption box. <laughs> You know, it's Sleepwalker discovers that reading isn't for everyone when he battles the brutal bookworm. And it's like, you got to love that. I mean, come on. It's the, the bad guy's name is the bookworm. And, you know, when we get to that one, it's it's we're goddamn ridiculous, but it's fun. <laughs> well, you got to Roddy, Roddy, Roddy McDowell's in it. Yes. McDowell it's nothing like nothing yep. <laughs> like Roddy McDowell. He doesn't have a reading lamp on his head. That's a shame. Uh, it's a shame. It's a missed opportunity. Yeah, I think if they were gonna if they were gonna redo uh, this now, he'd probably be called hipster douchebag. <laughs> but hey, that's I like just, on, you know. on the shot of the multiple uh, sleepwalkers. Yeah, the, the furthest one back looks like kind of the Gorn, and he should be fighting Captain Kirk. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's and, true. And from this point forward, I will probably, in my mind, picture the sleepwalker's voice as being similar to the Gorn in the uh, in that episode. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't know. I don't know who would voice him. They'd probably just get uh, Morgan Freeman to voice him if they made a movie nowadays. <laughs> I've been going yeah. in and out of people's dreams for years. I thought Benedict Cumberbatch ah, he's voices a- for things now, so... That's exactly why I wouldn't want him to be. Actually, you know what? <laughs> Screw it. If I was gonna get a sleepwalker movie made, yeah, make it make him Benedict Benedict Cumber Dumpster. Yeah, do it. Well, he didn't. They, he couldn't have spent too much of his time voicing Smog. Uh, and he did the mocap too. Yeah, it still couldn't have taken too long. Did you have you yeah, seen it? Yeah, they had him crawling around oh, yeah. the mocap. <laughs> yeah, I've seen him. I've seen them all, man. I've seen I've seen uh, Battle of the Five Armies twice already. <laughs> Yeah, they they moved they moved his part along a little quicker than I anticipated. Put it that way. Uh, that's all. That's the whole function of the dragon, man. He's yeah, it like... is. But you know what? In the book, he was he was far more significant uh, because the book didn't have that whole other storyline going on. That's true. But uh, I mean, for every second he's on screen, you can't take his take your eyes off him. That is true. Okay, I'll give you that. And this is not the Hobbit cast. So. No, but I could happily do that one too. Uh, yeah. So. Uh, more Sleepwalker coming up. Let's let's rate this thing. You go. Uh, the cover is pretty crappy, <laughs> by all accounts. Uh, it is not really detailed. It's just look at all these characters. You know you want to buy this book. It's the 1990s. Uh, we need to sell this book. So here's all these characters. Um, I mean the only decently artistic thing on it is the fact that you've got 
the only part of Reed Richards that you see is his elongated neck and his elongated arms, and he's coming from off the page, and oh, that's it. Looking. A little bit, a little bit, yeah. Uh, Rick has absolutely zero definition to his face, and he looks like he's about 10, <laughs> when in the book he looks sometimes looks like he's 18, sometimes he looks like he's 35. Uh, Sleepwalker remains the best thing <laughs> rendered on the book. Um it's not as detailed as some of the panels that we'll get inside of him, but it's like, oh, that's Sleepwalker, and he's lanky and weird looking. Um, the cover, I mean, that's a. We, we, we do out of 10 on this, right? No, we do uh, letter grades. A, B, C. <laughs> oh, letter grades. Uh, then, yeah, C minus. Uh, you know, it could be worse, I guess. It could be a lot better. The interior art has splashes of brilliance, namely the splash page. And, uh, you know, there's panels here and there where it's really evocative. Um, yes, I gotta give it a C plus maybe, uh, for the interior art story. Uh, story gets a, a, a B, B plus, B plus. There we go. Mark it down. All right. Uh, Luke, you want to give yours? Okay. Um, the cover, I kind of agree with Hero. I, I don't think it's all that great. One thing I do really like about the cover is I love the use of the, the black negative space there. Um, I find on, on covers, especially covers from this vintage, because they didn't do it a lot, if you have covers with a lot of negative space, it's like that, it tends to draw your eye to it when you're looking at a stack of, I know, a, 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 a row of comics on a shelf on a comic shop. So I like the, the negative space on there. Um, and I, I really like the corner box with Sleepwalker in the film strip. I think that's pretty yeah. neat, considering yeah, the, the story inside. Yeah, the corner boxes, the, there'll be mo- some more good ones, actually, on this on this run. Um, as far as the interior art, I, I really dug it. Um, I'm not, uh, you know, again, growing up uh, reading comics in the 90s, I'm, I've kind of, uh, you know, uh, there's certain 90s things that don't bother me the way that, um, you know, uh, other it, it, it sticks to some other readers. I, I generally like the art in this. I really like all the, uh, the kind of, um, you know, crazy kind of stuff going on, like pages like uh, 7, 8, and 9 with all the weird... Uh, yeah. mindscapes and them falling through the thing. I get, besides uh, Steve Ditko, I also get when uh, kind of a vibe of like Jim Starlin, like when Starlin would do some of his his uh, kind of heady stuff when he was writing um, or writing and drawing like Adam Warlock or Captain Marvel, and you get some of the weird cosmic stuff like that. I'm, I'm thinking specifically the uh, on page eight where we see um, its panel, I guess, four here, the big panel where we see Rick falling almost like an S-curve with his face yeah. in various shades of pink and blues. Yeah. Uh, that, that just the way with the face repeated over and over, made me think of there's an issue of Avengers when the Avengers first fought with uh, Thanos, where we see Death turning around, turning from cute Death Girl to Skeleton Face, named by Jim Starlin. So it made me think of that, just like I said. And, and I like Steve Ditko, and I like Jim Starlin, so I, I can't really fault it too much. Yeah, I think it's I mean, very that's... funny that Bob Budiansky... Oh, go ahead, Chris. Uh, well, that, I mean, that's the thing. The art, when it gets to cut loose like that, is always it, it always draws your eye. It's just yeah. when there's normal stuff going on, it's blah. Yeah. I, I I like that uh, Bob Budiansky is is the writer and the colorist. This that that's not a typical combination that no. you see. You know, <laughs> no. writer and colorist. I think um I can't remember the guy's name, but he wrote um uh, uh Morbius for a while in the '90s. He was the writer and the letterer. You know. <laughs> Well, there you go. Yeah, okay, sure. (laughs) Nobody let us this but me. Uh, But as far as the story, like I said, I I really enjoyed it. I think it was a great introduction to to Sleepwalker. Even if you hadn't, like like I said, I haven't read the first two issues. I've 
only heard uh, you know your your coverage of them. So this I thought was really great. It really brought me back up to speed with the character and the details. Oh, one other thing about the art I do want to mention that page that shows the mindscape on one side and then all the sleepwalkers on the other. I really yeah. like the green guy who's grabbing onto the panel. Oh yeah, yeah. I I always like that when you see somebody interact like. A sp- Especially when it's supposed to be a you know another plane of reality or something heady and cosmic where they they uh, interact with the actual physical uh, layout of the book, I always like that. Yeah, so I pretty... think that does us any touch. But um, so the the cover, um, I'm probably with you. I'm going to give the cover a, uh, a a C. It's 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 all right. It's not great by any stretch. It's a pretty typical type of gang, you know, beat up the hero cover. Um, interior art. I don't know. I, like I said, he, the to me, even the more plain stuff served to highlight the crazier stuff. So I'm I'm going to give the the interior art a B. And then the story, I think, again was uh, wasn't anything earth shattering, but it was really I thought it was really interesting stuff. So I'm going to give it a, a B plus. So overall, I'm going to give the book a solid B. All right, interesting. Now, uh, all right, the cover. <clears throat> I do. I've lately been outspoken of not liking. The overuse of white negative space in a lot of the covers that we've seen. Uh, I do prefer the neg- the black negative space. I think it is more eye-catching and it, it really draws you to it a little bit more. So I'm okay with that here. Uh, I'm okay with the layout of the cover. It's really the individual renderings of the characters that I'm not too crazy about. Um, I don't know. There's just something about that like they they if if they were better drawn i think the cover would be more dynamic and it would be better uh but i'm i'm pretty much on board with you guys i'm going to say c minus on the cover uh just slightly below average but had the potential to be well above average if it had been drawn better the yeah. interior i think luke you make some good points on the interior art uh my biggest criticism is Rick seems to be very inconsistent in how he is drawn. Yep. And a lot of times when there's background things that aren't necessarily important to the story, he seems to kind of not really care about them that much. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I wasn't crazy about the way the superheroes were drawn. To me, it almost it almost screams to me uh, 1990s annual. Uh, you know, like when they had the tryouts of young <laughs> artists. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's, but it's it's not good. But it's you, not know, great. you know what I'm you know what I'm thinking on it though to to give a little bit of forgiveness on that is I'm thinking this isn't supposed to be him drawing these characters. This is supposed to be him drawing Rick's thoughts of what these characters are. So I'm willing to give him a little leeway on that. Uh, uh, so that would explain a lot then. <laughs> you know that I mean maybe I'm maybe I'm overthinking it. I don't know. But I'm, but I'm willing to give him a little bit of leeway. I think overall, uh, on a whole, I think the art, now that we're in issue three, and I, I, I obviously wasn't on with you for issue one, but we did issue two not that long ago. Uh, I think this is a step up slightly from issue two. Uh, so I don't even remember what I gave the art in that one. I think I gave it a C. So I'm going to go C plus on the art for this one. And the story, I really like the story. Like you said, it's it's pure exposition, but I think they present it in a way where the exposition is enjoyable, the exposition yeah. is understandable, why why the expedition, exposition is needed. Uh, so I'm going to say B, solid B on the story, and I'm going to say B- minus overall. Overall, this is a f- so far through three issues, this is a fun series, and I'm enjoying the heck out of it. All right. I also noticed Nightcrawl is in the background, too. <laughs> where is that? 
page. Uh, it's the the two page splash. Right. He's right behind Cyclops and next to Sue Storm. Oh, kind of behind by... behind Reed Richards' neck. Yeah. All right. Cool. Yeah, I see that. Well, that that makes sense that he'd be hard to see because you know Nightcrawler does blend into shadows. That's true. That's kind of his thing. Yeah. I, I also do like that um, everybody is in their early '90s looks, mm-hmm. so the thing is all extra rocky. Was that actually Ben Grimm at the time, or was it somebody else? Sharon Ventura? I don't know. It would be one or the other. I mean, they were both on the team at the same time, and he was extra rocky. I I, I thought that was the thing when... Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I I thought that's the... uh, I I thought that that thing had gotten all extra rocky when he left the FF and he hung out with the Wackos for a while or something. I don't don't know. It's been a long time. Yeah, it has. uh, But I'm pretty sure that was... I'm pretty sure that's Ben Grimm there. All right. And uh, I'm just trying to think if, if there's anything else. I, I, I really think you're both right on the money, though, with this being, you know, it's a poor man's version of it, but uh, very, very influenced by Steve Ditko and Jim Starlin. I have, I have no doubt. Yeah, I mean, because you got to figure. And also really. Go ahead, Chris. Uh, you got to figure. I mean, uh, Rep Levins at the time was probably, I mean, I don't know how old he was, but he was probably of the age where he grew up reading those two artists you know so it makes sense mm-hmm. I, I also like uh hero especially you doing this book with all the references to dream theater uh yeah i did that intentionally <laughs> I, occasionally i, I occasionally I, I plan things <laughs> it, it may seem like old, old stream of consciousness I could have I could have started singing "Pull Me Under" too, but that yep. was a little been a little on the nose. A little on the nose. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we ready to move on? Sure. Yes, sir. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna take the next one because we're going double Marvel, and my reasoning being, uh, since we're doing Hero Sleepwalker Theater, uh, that doesn't count as necessarily any individual company because it's just. Your, it's just your 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 uh, little tangent on the show for now. All right. So, so I have another Marvel. I have Black Panther number one from January of 1977, which sports a 30-cent cover price. And the cover is by Jack Kirby and John Verporten. I don't believe we've uh, seen any John Verporten work in, our, uh, in my time on Back to the Bins, at least. So it's uh, kind of a typical Jack Kirby layout. You got a close-up of the Panther. Reaching for a glowing frog uh, with Kirby crackle all over it. And while he's being restrained by a uniformed goon, uh, there's a woman on one side and a monocle-wearing man on the other. And everybody in the picture, except for the panther, has a gun in their hand. The story is titled King Solomon's Frog. It's written, penciled, and edited by Jack Kirby. Inked and lettered by Mike Royer and colored by Dave Hunt. The story opens with the panther entering a room accompanied by a small man with a walking stick, a fedora, and a monocle. If ever there was a part made to be played by Peter Dinklage, I think we're seeing it here. (laughs) Oh, man. Anyway, there's a, a man sitting in a chair with an ornate frog in his hand, and it turns out the man was a collector of antiquities and has been run through by a sword. Meanwhile, there's an armored, sword-bearing man lurking around the corner. He lunges at the panther, who ducks just in time. The two battle, ending with the warrior running off. They let him go, assuming he'll be picked up by the authorities and not slice 30 or 40 people in half. 
I'm not so sure that that was a smart assumption, but that's what they do. The panther and the small man, whose name is Mr. Little, <laughs> apparently uh, his DNA knew his last name. Great. Uh, they talk, and Mr. Little tells him uh, that the warrior was a was displaced from another time by the frog, which is a time machine that used to belong to the panther's grandfather. Apparently, the dead man was examining the frog and mistakenly activated it, which brought the armored soldier to the present, where he promptly ran the man through with a sword. Panther and Mr. Little leave in a jet copter. Mr. Little advises the panther that the frog was part of King Solomon's treasure and must be returned to his burial chambers. As they travel, they start to be pursued by a large aircraft, but their copter is armed, and they basically blow that large aircraft out of the sky. Mr. Little tells Panther that the time-displaced creature, or, or that time-displaced creatures, excuse me, have become legends passed down through generations, uh, like the story of Alibaba and the Genie and the Loch Ness Monster. Uh, at this point, our uh, hero and his diminutive tour guide are attacked by a jetpack using squad of goons. In response, Mr. Little activates a speed boost in the chopper, leaving the goons in the dust. They descend into a large pit, which has been fully built up inside, sort of like a Mr. Little cave. Uh, but when they get there... Better than a Richard Little cave. <laughs> <laughs> then he'd be doing a bad Johnny Carson imitation. <laughs> the panther uh, senses another presence and Mr. Little is promptly shot. Panther then battles some more goons until he's put down by some type of a ray gun being used by a woman who looks like a dark-skinned version of Big Barda. Oh her my name God, is, she's hot. Her name is Princess Xander. One of the goons hands her the frog. She invites the panther to join her, saying that her goals are the same as Mr. Little's. The panther rejects her offer kicks the frog away from her and then a shot from one of the soldiers knocks the frog from the panther's hand and activates it bringing forth a large-headed bizarre being with hatch 22 written on his forehead and we're told next the six million year man this is kind of typical <laughs> it's crazy it is crazy Absolutely. i love it but it's crazy and just like just a, a, a fun way uh, as far as i'm concerned uh, this is typical of the, Chris, you know, you and I were talking earlier about like kind of the Kirby eras. You had Kirby in the Golden Age, then you had Kirby in the Marvel Age, the Marvel Silver Age. And then when he left Marvel around 1970 and went to DC, that kind of starts the third Kirby Age, was, which was, you know, his creating the fourth world at DC and then coming back to Marvel and doing Captain America and doing the Black Panther and Devil Dinosaur and... 2001 and the Eternals uh, that's kind of the the third Kirby era and this to me is typical of that era this this could easily be reading a, an issue of OMAC or something along those lines from the Kirby uh, vault but it's just fun my biggest criticism of this is there's really no reason why this is the Black Panther yeah, uh, exactly. Yep. <laughs> if 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 you change the artwork in it and you made it the exact same thing, only it was Captain America or it was Daredevil or Moon Knight uh, or Moon Knight, <laughs> the story wouldn't be changed in the slightest. And that's probably my biggest criticism of it. He is he has no characterization where the Black Panther is distinguished to who he is in any way, shape, or form. Uh, 
But that aside, it's just fun shit. <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. I, 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 the, reading through it, I, I rarely do this. I, I really didn't even pay attention to the, to the word balloons. I just was pulled instantly at just looking at all the line work in this. Because it's, you know, I, I, you know, I know this is Kirby's progression towards his, you know, downturn. But my God, the man still packed in so much detail into his stuff. It's ridiculous. Like, I'd, I'd look at him on a bad day over just about anybody else. I think I said that on, like, the first episode I was on. Somebody brought a, a Kirby book. And it's like, him at his worst is, like, put him up against anybody. And you, you can't help but look at it. He draws beautiful, ugly people. It's, it's amazing. This, the, this, uh, the, is, this is the Kirby that when other people pay homage to him... In their artwork, when somebody like Keith Giffen does OMAC and tries to do it in a Kirby style, this is the Kirby era that they're aping. Yeah, yep. No, I mean, uh, I, I agree with you, Paul. That, that, that was the thing. I was reading this. I was like, this really does nothing to do with the Black Panther. And the other thing I kept wondering is, was this was this issue number one after the Panther was in another book? Yes. Yes, it, or it's, it's, that's actually very interesting. Off the deep end here. It's interesting yeah. that you bring that up. He he was uh, given his own series in the or given control of the series in Jungle Action, and I think it's the first right. thirteen or so issues of that are just kind of uh, you know jungle stories, and you have like you know Thangar the Barbarian or whoever in them. But then in I think it's issue fourteen reprints uh, an issue of the Avengers from number sixties when he fights the Man Ape. And then they go on to a story with Rich Buckler doing artwork, and and uh, I think uh, maybe Doug Mensch wrote it. I'm not sure, but they had a, a storyline going, and there was only like a one month delay between the last issue of that series and the first issue of this one. But Kirby totally, totally disregarded everything that went on in that series <laughs> and just started a totally new storyline and and had no interest in what, what had gone before. Well, when you you're the king, you can do that. But I mean, Kirby's. Kirby had an incredible, an incredibly visual imagination. I mean, just the, the characters he came up with are just so uh, striking. And I mean, some of them are similar in many ways. I, I love Mr. Little in this book. Yeah. I, I get a big <laughs> kick out of him. And, and I'm, I'm happy to tell you he, he was not actually killed. Oh, good. Thank God. I, I hate Thank when God. short people die. It's I, actually, I, uh, should I have said that you could have played him in the movie? Uh, unfortunately, I'm a little bit taller, and 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 unfortunately, I'm I'm also, I you know I I I would have to wear the hat because the the top of my head is starting to go. So. You go with the monocle, you'd be fine. <laughs> I just want the purple. I just want the purple zoot suit. He, he comes back. It turns out yeah. he's wearing a bulletproof vest. He's back in the next issue. He continues to appear in this series. Then he goes by the wayside for years and years, but he eventually resurfaces in an issue of Iron Man, uh, probably around early two thousand. Nice. I got Princess Xander's thighs. Oh my god! And she's got. <laughs> Tell me, she doesn't look like feet. Vic Barda. Uh, well, with more melanin, yeah. Yeah, well, a dark-skinned Vic Barda. I mean, yeah, but considering uh, that, that Kirby yeah. created Vic Barda, I think he's allowed to steal from himself. Absolutely. Yeah, and I, and I love that. And, and in addition to Barda, she's also got the same. Uh, you know, Kirby always had a penchant for putting his ladies in uh, insane headgear. So she's got the headgear going on here as well. It's yeah, not as bad as Crystal, where it's like, how the hell does that work? This one, at least you can figure out, okay, she put it over her face for some reason. But no, I, I love this, this full-page split of uh, of the princess, like you said. It's uh, 
man, she she looks, you know, she can kick my ass any day she wants, you know. <laughs> well, you, you you're you're casting the movie. You're putting 1978 version of Tina Turner in that role. Oh, Pam Grier, <laughs> Pam Grier. Yeah, I was gonna say. Pam I could go with Pam Grier, but I'm I'm picturing Tina Turner from uh, when she was playing the Acid Queen in Tommy. Ooh, frightening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. You're right. Um, I actually. Yeah, uh, one of my uh, one of my very dear friends, his wife is always looking for new characters to uh, dress up as for Dragon Con. I think I'm going to send her this comic. Yeah. <laughs> and it will go over everybody's heads. You're going to send it to her <laughs> expecting other shows. she's done. What's that? Mr. Little. That's right. Yeah. That's, that's what I was going to say. You're going to send her the book expecting her to show up as the princess. She's going to come dressed as Mr. Little. <laughs> well, you know, she she's done uh, uh, Misty Knight, and um, she did... Um, Oh, what was her name? Uh, um, can't think of her. Uh, no, Nubia, the the Black Wonder Woman. And she's done a bunch of other characters like that. She says she's always looking for new characters. So I'm like, hey, here you go. This is one no one will know exactly who the hell you are at Dragon Con. <laughs> How the hell do you put that costume together, though? Like, I was amazed that in the Guardians of the Galaxy movie that they, you know, they kind of got the the shape and the lines of Ronan down. You know, mm. it's like. Uh, get another Kirby you... creation, by the way. Yeah, I know. That's why it's like, how the hell would you? How do you do that? You, I mean, my God, that would take a lot of work. You'd have like make it like a printed leotard, and then just do gloves and boots and a helmet, you know, and then a belt. I guess I don't know. I'm... It's crazy. <laughs> I, I gotta crazy. wonder if you know when Kirby was working at DC, if this is an idea he had for one of the other series that he was working on. And when he came over from Marvel to Marvel, and they said, "Oh, do Black Panther," he's all right. I'll just stick Black Panther into the story. I wouldn't be has, surprised. This yeah. has so little to do with the Panther himself. Uh, the only negative in the art I can see is I hate seeing Black Panther's pupils. Yeah, I hate that doesn't it. bother me. <laughs> and you see them all the time in this story. <laughs> yeah, it just does not work for me. I actually prefer it when they show it where you could actually see like around his eyes through the eye openings. That Not would just be... the pupils. I don't want. I don't want just giant white eyes sticking out there. I want. I want to see, you know, like a little bit of the, the skin around the eye. If you're gonna do that, then yeah, show the pupils. But if it's supposed to be like a, a lens on the mask, then I don't want to see the pupils. But that's me. I like the shot when uh, what's saying Princess Zand is grabbing him by the mask, and you could see kind of the mask is pulling back. Yeah. You could see the kind of the lines where it's pulling it. You know, it's it's not just staying in place the way. Uh, most artists would render it. Yeah. Kind of looks like the gimp yeah, in Pulp I mean, Fiction, though. Yeah. <laughs> I, and see, with that, I, I thought they, I thought she was going to pull his mask off, to be honest with you. Because, Which would be not a problem. Because that's the only time you identity. see... Right, yeah. But in, in, in comic book shorthand, you know, the only time that somebody interacts with the mask like that is when they're going to pull it off, off you know? Yeah. So I thought, like, I, I agree with you. I thought that was a really neat visual touch that she's grabbing him by the back of his head and it's actually the, the the costume was reacting like cloth which i thought was was real nice I, I also like the way that all her tassels always fly around when she's moving yeah you know? i also i also liked the foreshadowing of the hypno toad turning into a gray alien yeah <laughs> i don't Come think on. It turns, i don't think it turns into the alien or whatever it i think it just brings the, the alien from somewhere in time yeah Iron Man reference from the incredible year six million, and yes, I I had the uh, everybody loves Hypno Toad. That's all I could think of, man. <laughs> that I love that design of that alien, man. That thing is great. I love it. And I and I and I love his very, you know, um, 
Kirby always, I always think of uh, a lot of times had cert- certain economies when writing dialogue. And I think this alien's dialogue is, is like some of the most Jack Kirby dialogue ever written. What are you? Speak or die. Yeah. <laughs> like, that, that's, what else can you say after that? I mean, that pretty much lays it all out for you. <laughs> yeah, it, does, it, it gets the message across. <laughs> yeah, if this was this this was back in the day when every sentence ended in an exclamation point too. So yeah, <laughs> that's true. This uh, page twenty three. I mean that uh, that's to me looks like classic Kirby. That could be Captain America in that first panel. You know, socking two guys at the same time and then kicking another guy. And then the next panel is just knuckle dusting that dude's chin. I mean, that's oh, great. Yeah. That is fantastic stuff. And and one thing I've always liked about how Jack Kirby. Kirby drew the Panther. Well, he's always consistent about showing his gloves like that to be ribbed on the glove and on the on the wrist and on the finger. And it's just it's just a little piece of texture that makes the Panther's costume, which is by its nature monochromatic. Adding that little bit of detail texture on it always makes it look a little bit more realistic. Yeah, the, uh, you know the, what I mean. Yeah, the concept art for what they're going to do with him in the movies is it looks so good. I have not seen that yet. I'll try to find it while you guys jibba jabba. All right, well, I guess I'll throw my ratings out. And I, I go ahead, Luke. I was gonna say, and I, and I agree with you also, Chris. That that first panel on twenty three that that is a total cap panel. Oh but yeah, yeah, it's right out of Tales. Kirby of Suspense. always drew the panther like that, whether it was in FF or yeah, say Tales of Suspense or or in the early days of Fantastic Four. You know, he there's um, the way that Kirby drew Cap. He always was described he and in fact i want to say when he came back to captain america around 200 or so when they did mad bomb and mm-hmm. stuff like that where he would always use the term always oh, a human pinball <laughs> you know uh, and that's exactly the way that he always did the panther that he was just bouncing and uh from target to target laying people out you know so uh <laughs> the, the the art in this is uh is is great i'm i'm a as listeners to this show may be aware from when we back when we did assistant editors month and i did atlas I'm a big fan of Jack Kirby, especially from this era. So the the very bombastic, you know, stylized, you know, Kirby at his most unfiltered uh, style really appeals to me. So the the art in this was I thought was just fantastic. I, I had I've never read any of this. I, I think I vaguely knew in the back of my mind that Kirby had done the Black Panther in a solo uh, strip, but I had never seen it. So this this was just an absolute treat for me to see. Oh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I uh, yeah I. I... I love Kirby from, you know, basically from the Silver Age through all of this. It's, I, I can't say I necessarily have, well, I would think my, my era of Kirby's a little earlier than this. I was, I remember talking about how I noticed the maturation of his artwork and it's not that, it's not that he matured as an artist, but it's that he took the medium, medium and matured it. Uh, I remember seeing it in the Fantastic Four Right around the time when they did the Galactus trilogy, that all of a sudden he said, "You know what? I'm not going to draw it as simplistic as I, as the house style has been in the past. I'm gonna I'm gonna bring this up a level." And I think from that point and the remainder of his time at Marvel is my, probably my favorite Kirby. Uh, but this whole era from the point when he left Marvel and he was uh, unedited because he was editing himself, uh, I get a kick out of some of the stuff that he just came up with it's just so crazy and and the artwork i mean it was it became his standard that he'd have the splash page followed virtually every issue by a two-page splash mm-hmm. uh and usually that two-page splash would have some real dynamic scene in it 
of, of something, you know, something really action-packed going on. And, and it's just, you know, just great stuff. So I'm going to look at this. I think, I think this is a great cover. I love this cover. Uh, it, it's, it's dynamic. It's exciting. It's got stuff going on. It's got characters from inside the book. Uh, it, it just makes you wonder what the heck is going on. Why is this frog here? Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm thinking it's, it's not the absolute best ever, but I'm thinking A-. minus. Uh, the interior art, I'm ready to go the same way. Yes, it is exaggerated. Yes, they are ugly, ugly people. Uh, but it's just so cool, and the storytelling is fantastic. The pace is fast. Uh, it, it's just like, you know, Chris, you said you, you, you went through this. You didn't have to read the word balloons to, to, to know exactly what was going on, and that tells you so much about his storytelling. Yep. Uh, I'm going to say that the, the interior artwork is also an A-. minus. Uh, the story is so far out and fun. It, it's not Kirby does not write my typical books that I enjoy because it's a little different than what, what I would normally go to. But it just once I start reading, I'm so pulled in that uh, I'm going to say solid B plus on this. Uh, the dialogue could be better, but other than that, and 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 something about Black Panther could actually reflect the fact that he's the Black Panther. But aside from those two facts. <laughs> I, I think the story is really good, so I'm going to go B plus on it, and I'm going to say give the overall the overall book an A minus. All right, uh, I give it sl- just a little bit less than that. Uh, if I'm comparing it to you know everybody else at the time, yeah, it'd be it'd be an A minus. I I gotta go solid B uh, for the for the artwork, interior and exterior. Uh, you know, as an action rop, it's pretty good. Um, you know, I'm I'm kind of curious to see what happens next. But if I if I never read the next issue, I'm content with what I got. So, uh, you know, I got story wise, I'd, I'd probably give it a B minus. So uh, overall, what does that make that I, a B a B to B? Yeah. Um, I'm I'm uh I'm with Paul. I, I love the cover. Again, I'm just a I'm a sucker for Jack Kirby, especially like I said the later stuff. I'm also a sucker for frogs. I love frogs. So <laughs> this King Solomon's frog with the <laughs> This crazy Kirby frog on the cover. I'm just like, well, if I see that, I'm buying it. That's just, you know, and full stop, end of line. So that's an A on the cover right there. Um, the interior art, again, I, I really, I, I just really enjoy it. I love the dynamism, even just, uh, and, and just some of the crazy technology. Like, uh, again, uh, page 10, the last panel where we see the um, King Solomon's frog and he sees all the, the Kirby crackle inside and all the crazy, you know, unexplained mystical forces inside of it. Just looks great. Paul, you mentioned drawing ugly people. I think Mr. Little on panel two of that page looks like Virgil from uh, Battle of the Planet of the Apes. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> and so the singer decides <laughs> not oh to God. sing the song in the first place. But but again, Kirby's, Kirby's people always had that crazy, grotesque sort of look to them at this stage. Um, the caustic, all the designs between... Mr. Little and the princess and their um, the not the the little jet copter and the big ship that comes to swallow them like the Leparis from the Spy Who Loved Me, uh, oh, the yeah. big uh, the big, big empty and and another James Bond reference they land in the cavern it's like the volcano from You Only Live Twice oh yeah so uh, <laughs> I, so I I mean just an A I love the art in this and, oh and just just to take you in a step story, further the uh, story um Luke the uh, the jetpacks uh, from Thunder from, from Thunderball. <laughs> There you go, <laughs> and and of course, it's a giant alien from. Uh, no, no, I'm joking. <laughs> uh, 
but uh, so the like I said the art for me on the covers an A, the interior art's got to be an A. The story is it's it's very typical sort of Kirby from this in that it's a lot of kind of big ideas thrown about and you're just kind of along for the ride. I I was getting the same thing that not only does the Panther not have any characterization, but there are um, he he doesn't even sound his voice doesn't sound like the Panther. Uh, at one point he yells, "No deal, princess." find another travel guide. It's like, that sounds more like Captain America than it does the Black Panther, who always kind of spoke more with a, uh, at least when, when uh, Stan Lee or Roy Thomas was writing him in Avengers, you know, a little bit more regal, uh, you know, speech to him. Uh, that He sounds almost like or either, like I say, Captain America or maybe the Falcon, if you will. Uh, but he does this call, call him like a turkey or something, so he may not be quite Falcon enough. Um, but, uh, but I mean, it's just the, for the plot of it, I, I really enjoyed it. So I'm going to give the story probably a B. And I give the book uh, uh, an A minus. I think uh, I'm I'm definitely going to see if I can track down some more of this because uh, this this is just crazy. And anytime I can discover some Jack Kirby stuff that I haven't read, I'm interested in checking it out. So, all right, I can't argue with any of that. Uh, <laughs> but I think it's time to move on to book number three. All right, and uh, I, I think it's appropriate that we had um, Sleepwalker and then Black Panther. We had two Marvels because for our indie book. I brought a book from Atlas and Atlas Seaboard, which desperately, desperately wanted to be Marvel. So I think that's, uh, that's an appropriate third book. So I have Weird Suspense featuring the Tarantula, number one, which came out on, uh, it was cover dated of February 1975, on sale date on or around uh, December 24th, 1974, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics. Uh, our cover is credited to Dick Giordano, and we uh, in this um, we see a, a, a woman who is just breaking her bonds after being tied to a stake and set on fire. And uh, she says, "Though I die, Count Lycosa, you will bear my curse—the curse of the Tarantula." As the uh, one assumes, Count Lycosa does his Frederick March impression and turns into a uh, green, furry, uh, red compound bug guide monster right before our eyes on the cover. Yeah. Um, just, just, uh, yeah. <laughs> so our story is, uh, uh, the, our writer is, is Michael Fleischer. Our artist is, uh, Pat Boyette and our editor is Jeff Roven. And, uh, uh, the, on the first page, we get the introduction. It says legend. This story introduces a figure so terrifying that those who become easily frightened are cautioned not to read this magazine. To some, he is merely Count Eugene Lycosa, a brooding man with a taste for some but to those unfortunate enough to have learned his unholy secret he is the tarantula a fearsome victim of the horrifying curse of the tarantula and our splash page is very similar to the cover with the woman tied to the stake uh placing a curse on uh, as she's about to be burned on count lycosa who is turning about halfway into the tarantula but as our story proper starts, we jump to the modern day in a maximum security prison where a breakout is in progress. And it's the all three of the Barton brothers have broken out. And I don't, I don't know why you'd put all three of them together in the cell. But, you know, they did put those two brothers together and escape from Alcatraz. So what do I know? Um, it never worked with the Beagle Boys. They always just broke out of prison also. But uh, So the, uh, the, the Barton boys make good on their escape. They, they kill one of the guards on the wall. And uh, his partner shoots dead one of the Barton boys, so they return the favor and grab the, the fallen guard's gun and kill the other guard. Then they jump over the wall and meet up with Bugsy, their wheelman. And uh, they make a they make a getaway, 
uh, with a raging gunfight between uh, themselves and the uh, corrections officers, and they're whirring through the streets as it, a storm starts to rise up in the city. And uh, the gunfight leads to the uh, police officers losing control of the vehicle and smashing their patrol car into a, uh, looks like a telephone pole, and exploding into fire. So the Barton boys make good on their escape. And uh, they find themselves escaping into the woods. And they're kind of getting turned around because of the storm. And uh, they need to find some place to find some shelter. So they find a dilapidated old house on the hill. And they figure that'll be a good place where they can maybe get out of the rain and get some new clothes and hide out for a little while. So we cut to inside the house and we meet Count Lycosa and his uh, gentleman's gentleman, uh, Joseph. And we all know that he has a manservant. That means he's rich. Rich. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's uh, it's comic book law. So, uh, and uh, Joseph was listening to uh, uh, plot point specific radio WPPSR, or uh, <laughs> or if you or if you want to be like Mike Bailey, the Expositional News Network. Uh, and they have they look. He looks out the window and sees the three men, and he says, "Those look like the convicts we just heard described on the radio." To which Lycosa huh. says, "You might be right. One of them's carrying a submachine gun." Uh, so the conflict, the uh, the Barton boys come up to the front door and they knock and they kind of force their way in and uh, um, they they take a look around the place but they are quickly met by uh, Count Lycosa who has transformed himself into the tarantula and you know he's scary because he has the word balloons with tarantula legs on them and uh, he grabs the rifle from the stunned Barton boys and snaps it in half and uh, they try to run out the front door but the door is now locked which suggests to me that Joseph went and locked the door behind them so they run into the house to try to escape, and uh, the tarantula keeps stalking after them. At one point, he's climbing on the walls while they're uh, running away, and they end up running into a dark room and getting snared in a giant man-sized spider web. And the more they struggle, the more they're stuck in this giant horrific web. And up above them, the uh, ceiling opens up, and the tarantula begins to crawl down, and uh, he administers his venom to them paralyzing all of them and leaving them dead in his web. At this point, we begin to ask, who is Count Lycosa and how did he come to be known as the Tarantula? So we flash back to the Dark Ages in a strange little medieval village in Europe. Now this village is not an everyday medieval village because this one is attacked by a raven-haired priestess and her giant green spider monsters. And they come in the night and they attack people in the streets and then they grab other people out of their homes and drag them off. Now, what is the purpose of all this, you ask? Well, our raven-haired priestess drags these people out into the forest and then performs a ritual on them to turn them into more spider monsters for her army in worship of her mysterious and grim tarantula god. So the townsfolk have had enough of this crap, and but they don't know what to do. So Count Lycosa, the old Count Lycosa, says he has a plan and is a plan so brilliant that no one will ever see through it and his plan is that he's going to wait for the priestess to come back and kidnap and kill more people but when she he does he's going to dress up like a giant spider by going down to the giant spider emporium and getting a costume <laughs> you know as, as you've been as you know we all have done that on occasion oh once or twice you know, I mean, in college, you do all sorts of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm talking so, about. So, dressed up as a yeah, the dressed up as a giant green spider monster, Count Lycosa trails the priestess, and he finds the campsite where all the strange rituals are going down. He ditches his costume and runs back to town. Tells every uh, all the other villagers about it. So they gather up their torches and pitchforks, 
and they attack the site. And taking taking them by surprise, they're able to massacre all of the spider monsters and capture the priestess. And what do you do with the witch? Well, you tie her to a stake and burn her. her. And though Count Lyco says that (laughs) maybe you can stone her. (laughs) I want to make this perfectly clear. I don't want anyone to throw any stones at anyone, even if, and I want to make this clear, they say the word Jehovah. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> I can think of better uses for a... Mm-hmm. What a you know what they say about the crazy ones. You know? <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, even though Count Lycos says that he is, you know, his regret is that they can't bring back all the villagers that were turned into monsters that they mercilessly killed, and that he has no taste uh, to see uh, the spectacle such as a witch burning, and he turns away. The priestess uh, doesn't really is not moved by that, and says that it is his fault that all of this is coming to pass, and so that she will place a curse on him and his bloodline, so that all of his male descendants shall suffer the curse of the tarantula, and they will prowl the countryside uh, in quest of victims to appease their spider's lust. They will immobilize their fellow men with tarantula's paralyzing venom and then feed upon their human prey as the spider does the fly. And uh, Lycos's uh, villager buddy tells him, ah, don't pay it any mind, but then we cut back to the present, and the current Count Lycos says that he is the 11th descendant of the noble Count Lycosa, and that he, in fact, has the, uh, as all of his uh, ancestors have suffered, the curse of the tarantula. But now, he, even though he had decided to live here in this secluded house to avoid contact with innocent people, he finds that even in seclusion, he cannot avoid uh, the, his curse. So now he must go where his curse can be of some use. So he tells Joseph, we can no longer live in isolation. Hurry, my faithful steward, ready transportation. We are leaving. And it says, watch for his second adventure in the next issue of Weird Suspense Tales. Um, I found this in a 33-cent bin at my local local comic shop which is borderlands in greenville south carolina and every year on usually the saturday before the super bowl they do what's called their very creatively named big annual sale <laughs> and one of the hallmarks of the big annual sale is that all of the dollar bins become three for a dollar bins and thus that's how i got it for 33 cents now uh, i got this a couple of years ago at the time uh, i did not know what atlas comics was i had heard of the old atlas that eventually became marvel and i had heard the name atlas seaboard but i had no concept of what it was and being born in 1980 obviously this was way before my time of being even aware of comics so i grabbed it and i didn't think anything of it and i've come to um learn about the history of the of atlas seaboard and their very short-lived history i might add and it's fascinating stuff and uh, so this comic besides being what I thought a, a pretty fun, you know, ridiculous monster book, also was kind of a gateway to learning the even uh, more interesting real-life story behind um, Atlas Comics and, uh, you know, their, their short-lived attempt to be a major player in the American comics market in the mid-70s. So what did you guys think? I, uh, I dug it. It's, it's, it's got a little bit of EC Comics in it. It's got a little bit of Marvel Monster Comics in it. It's got a little bit of universal horror in it. I, it's got a it, lot of Charlton in it. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's it got a lot of... It is very Charlton-y. <laughs> yeah, mm, Charlton-y chew. Uh, it's got a... Uh, oh, I totally lost my train of thought. It's got great-looking, ugly people in it. <laughs> I love looking at beautiful, ugly art. <laughs> like, <laughs> the, I mean, the, the crooks in it, they're ugly people. <laughs> you you the, want the des- well-rendered ugly people. 
Hell yeah, who doesn't? <laughs> I mean, every comic's got good-looking people, and I want I want beautiful, ugly people, and it's just they're, they're ugly. <laughs> the design for the tarantula himself, I, it, that I how that wasn't. I mean, that looks like it comes right out of a '60s B monster movie. Yep. It's it's awesome. Uh, I you know you can see the the furriness on him, but he's still a man, so it's totally ripping off the fly. But I don't care because it's. It's rad. I mean, with the the mushy mouth, it's like dripping all the time. It's bleh. I love it. It's good stuff. I love how the eleventh descendant of Count Lycosa looks exactly like the first Count Lycosa, <laughs> minus the mustache. I can't. I can't imagine why that is. <laughs> I don't know. And I, I, here's, I'd like to raise another point though. How come it was only the male descendants? If you're that pissed at somebody, aren't you gonna curse all their descendants? Nah, leave the chicks out of it. I know yeah. it's 2014, 15. But it was the hell it is. I don't care. It was, what was it? it? Was uh, it was like the the 1800s? Or the 1700s? No, that was sometime in the Middle Ages. So. Okay, yeah. So it wasn't 2014. <laughs> uh, whatever. <laughs> I don't know. It's probably more know. historically correct for them to leave the women out of it. It's yeah. It may maybe. not be enlightened, but it was not an enlightened <laughs> age. Yeah, Luke. If you if you can whip to page twenty on the uh, the the digital that we're reading on the right hand yep. panel, uh, that's totally Moss Man from Masses of the Universe. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I believe that. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just saying. That's my my nerdiness getting the better of me. Yeah, but again, you know, it, it predates. Uh, yeah, that's true. Masters by by about ten years. You know, I bet um, if you, I'm up. I bet your actual issue probably smells like Moss Man right now. It actually smells very nice. It smells like very clean paper. It was probably read once and stuck in a box, you know? Well, well there you go. <laughs> um, yeah. No, I, I agree with you about the B-movie style. He he looks like something that would have been a uh, uh, Universal International, or, or no, not American International AIP kind of monster here. Yeah, you just know? a mask like, and gloves is all you'd need yep. for that. Could have easily been portrayed by Vincent Price. <laughs> and he even wears kind of the... Uh, and even wears kind of the, the the suit with the popped collar, you know. <laughs> the uh, so you know not to mess with him. Absolutely. I, I mean, he's he's got the the huge chicken lips on the cover. Uh, yeah, it's it, the cover's slightly different than the interior. I, I well, it's I, different I, different artist. Yeah, but it's still that ugh, that mush mouth. I mean, Pat, Pat <laughs> was, uh, was actually big. You know, he was pretty big with Charlton over his career. Uh, and and his, I guess I didn't know this, but I, I did a little bit of looking into it. And uh, his claim of claim to fame, I guess, at this point would be that he was a co-creator of the character the Peacemaker, yeah, Charlton Comics, who uh, was the uh, basis for the comedian, comedian. Watchmen. Yeah. Yep. yeah, and that, and that's about the only uh, I've I've seen him. He did a few issues of Black Hawk that I have, and uh, he did some you know some work here and there but i i primarily know him i've read a lot of charlton because you can find a lot of that stuff in public domain now including his peacemaker stuff and that, that's really what i know um, what i know uh, pat boyette from what's interesting is that michael fleischer has a much more varied uh, career including doing a lot of work on the character of jonah hex uh he yeah. wrote all of the hex series he wrote quite a bit of the jonah hex series that predated that um, he did a lot of work in um, Weird Western Tales. Uh, he also had quite a lot of credits writing Conan, both in Savage Sword and, 
and then the uh, Conan the Barbarian um, uh, comic. In fact, what was the what what issue number was it that you got from uh, from Ron? Of Do you remember of what? Of Conan the Barbarian? Uh, let's see. Hold on. Vamp for a moment while I look. one sixteen. Gil Kane cover. One sixteen. Okay, so that was a, he wrote a little bit after. Uh, he wrote. Uh, he started at, at one fifty, so he was a little bit after that. A couple of years after where that issue is. Yeah, this was uh, Len Wein. But yeah, but he, but he, like I said so. But he, but uh, you know, uh, I'm sure um, Scott Gardner would be familiar with his work from all the Jonah Hex stuff that he's done. So yeah, I'm sure. You can, yeah. I can, yeah, uh, I can but kind uh, of get that vibe, yeah. So uh, I, um, I said uh, I, I can just unless you have something you want to add, Paul. Just sort of start. Want to go out and uh, give our give our thoughts here? Yeah, I'll just yeah, I'll just uh, touch a little bit on. Uh, I I remember when uh, the Atlas Comics came out, but once again being uh, aged, uh, <laughs> and and I do remember at the time, you know. It, this was in an era where they weren't producing the uh, the volume of comics that they are now, and and there weren't very many independent uh, producers. You had Marvel, you had DC, and then you know everything else was you know kids comics. So uh, you know Atlas could have made a real run for it because I think there was a bit of a market to be had, uh, and and they they tried to make a real splash with it. They brought in you know some some big name talent. And uh, I, I think they didn't have the money to keep it going long term to get their feet really planted and, and develop an audience. But I remember at the time, at, at least at that point when I was, uh, you know, in, in uh, the early stages of two-digit two ages, uh, being, you know, kind of interested in a character like uh, Iron Jaw, who was basically, you know, a, a misogynist Conan the Barbarian. Uh, not that Conan was all that much of a ladies' uh, rights person himself, but uh, just really, you know, some some strange stuff there. Uh, we did cover previously in, in Ben's uh, an issue of the series The Brute from Atlas Comics. The Brute, yes. And 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 they could they I think they could have gone somewhere. They had some some weird stuff. Tiger Man. Uh, yep. They had the Planet of the Vampires. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember what else they had. Uh, but they were they were a fan of series. They really did try and like jump right in with both feet. They didn't, uh, you know, come out with a couple of series and and then try and build on them. They they came out with a bunch of series, and and yeah. I think that may have been the biggest problem was that they needed to turn a profit quickly because they were really, uh, you know, trying to make a splash in the market. And uh, I think if they had let it grow organically a little bit more, they they could have actually competed with the big two because, like I said, they did pull in some big name talent. But uh, yeah. this this is just you know this was a fun book this you know I I feel like I'm getting very repetitive just saying that over and over <laughs> again but but it, you know it's true for all three books that were brought today they're just fun books this this is definitely a a you know B level horror movie feel throughout yeah uh, the artwork is is you know it, it's reminds me a little bit of Joe Staten um, you know, you, you got to look beyond some of just the facial renderings and 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 look to to the layouts and the storytelling, uh, and and all of that's pretty solid in here. Uh, some some of the fine detail work is is lacking, uh, especially on the uh, a little bit. The, I'm looking at page 29. Uh, it, it's just you know, there's, there's just they could have they could have been a little bit more uh, uh, careful with some of the line work and and 
put a little bit more detail, a little bit better shadow work. But still, overall, like I said, the layouts are decent. They're pretty good. I think if, if you had paired a Boyette with a, a solid inker, uh, you, you would see a, a great improvement in this issue. Yeah. And the story is fun, and uh, you know, as a young teenager, I think I'd be uh, you know, raring to go to, to read issue number two on this one. Oh, yeah. I know I would be. Uh, yeah. I've... Go ahead, Hero. Oh, no. Was, yeah, I, I, I want to see who he bites next. Come on. <laughs> the, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, what, what's funny is that uh, Atlas, one of the things they became known for was called the third issue switch, where they would do, do one issue of a title, then they'd do the second, and then they'd start getting feedback, and if it wasn't Oh my God! The book wasn't selling gangbusters. They would start. They would start implementing wholesale changes in the third issue. Mm. Yeah. So he he would go and from most the, of their books two issues a of a horror to issue four. You'd have two issues of a horror book, and then the third issue all of a sudden the tarantula would become a traditional superhero. Yeah, which is kind of what, what happened here. Tarantula wasn't as bad as some of the others. The one that really stands out in my mind is the book called Target, which was um, uh, tar- Target. It was he started out as a he was a, a police officer and it was this kind of hard-boiled uh, crime book by uh, with with re- but it had really cartoony art which was really it's really very strange but then the in the second issue he ends up leaving the police force and becoming kind of a, a like a uh, like a vigilante and then by the third issue he's got like a, he looks as a costume like bullseye so it just completely changes um, another just interesting uh, side note. They, uh, Paul, you had mentioned that they kind of jumped in with both feet. Besides having stories from and comics from every genre you could think of, they had a Western book, they had two war books, they had, uh, you know, sword and sorcery books, monster books. They also reprinted um, Tower Comics, which was a, a previous entity from the 50s, uh, p- published a book called Tippy Teen. Well, they took those books and reprinted them with new covers under the name Vicky. So they were even taking a shot at Archie. <laughs> and uh and uh so that's just interesting and the other one that always was odd in, in doing my research about this was uh there was a book they put out called the scorpion which was written and illustrated by howard shaken mm-hmm. and the scorpion was a he was a pulp hero type adventure set uh in and around world war ii well this character is who would eventually become shaken's character dominic fortune uh and uh who was his character he ported him over to marvel in the late 70s so you can uh, the character is basically the proto version of Fortune, but otherwise it's uh, if you can find the Scorpion, you're reading the early kind of Chaikin's early uh, dalliances with doing those pulp adventure style stories that he become kind of known for in some of his uh, you know stuff. You'd see that influence on like American Flag and as I said, the Dominic Fortune, some of the other stuff he worked on as well. So there's some stuff worth checking out if you can find it. I've only ever found this stuff basically in the cheapy bins at random. You know, so yeah, I, I don't think any any of these. But if I, I but I definitely want to track down, down more of, uh, of this one. The only ones I've seen that have any value are some of the last issues that have like almost no print run. Uh, mm, I uh, guess so some of the ones I, that I made it like uh, police action is a good example. Oh no, they're not not huge demand, but I'm thinking as opposed to being a dollar book, it might be a, t- a six dollar book. You know, I I honestly I it's I not not anything any great shakes, but I'm I'm going by what I've seen on like my comic shop right, right now. I got you. So. Um, but I go ahead and uh, give the ratings. Uh, the cover, I, I really like it. But again, I'm, I'm more prone since I do like monsters so much. I'm, I was always the weird kid that liked monsters. I love that it's issue number one, and it says "all new, no reprint" on the cover. For some reason, that just really tickles me. It's um, important. The cover, yeah. <laughs> issue number one, all reprints. <laughs> 
Um, the, the, the pink is kind of an odd choice for the background, I guess, so it would be offset against the green of the, of the tarantula himself. Uh, the logo looks a little, um, I don't know. It, it looks almost like they're, uh, like they're a band, you know, like, you know, live at the pit, it's tarantula with limousine and big knife. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and melted butter. But uh, melted butter. <laughs> well, I love melted butter, man. They're they're great. I saw them once. They were fantastic. Um, so on the cover, uh, it's 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 pretty good for the era. I'd probably give it like a B minus. Just again, having a monster makes it a little more uh, prone for me. The interior art, I, I agree with you, Paul. It, it, it's good. The layouts are good, but there's not a whole. The, the detail comes and goes. Like um, uh, what page? On page five here where the, we see the police car being in the wreck. That just looks really good, and then the, the fire and explosion looks nice. But then sometimes the art gets a little soft in places. So, it's again, I'll probably go B- because I'm more prone to it. I like the horror aspects of it. Uh, the story, I really enjoyed. I thought it was nice to have you know a, a monster hero who's not some tragic figure, but who's just kind of embracing being a monster a little bit, you know, and he, uh, he kills and eats these dudes that, uh, you know, break into his house. So I, I thought that was neat. So I'm going to give the story probably a B plus. It's a solid B, you know, it's definitely a product of the time. Um, but I, I enjoyed it enough that it, it made me look into uh, learning more about Atlas as a whole. And I would love to get the other two issues of it. All right. Well, I'm a little bit less enamored with the cover than you. Um, it's just I, I don't like the way the tarantula looks on it. I like the the what's in whatever her name is in in the uh, on the the burning on the pyre. Uh, oh, yeah. I like the fact that count the way they show count uh, Lakosa in the various stages of the transformation. My my biggest complaint is the uh, is the actual tarantula face on the on the cover. Uh, and and I agree with you that the pink is an odd choice. It doesn't. I think it would have been better served to either be a uh, like a blood red or uh, or 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 a darker tone. But uh, you know it's it's okay. And again, I think uh, it would catch your eye at the time. And if you were a fan of horror movies, I think it would pull you in a little bit. And I think that that is the intended audience for the book. So I'm going to say it's a C. It it serves its purposes. Uh, the interior art, like I said, I think the layouts are solid. Uh, I do like the fact that that they kind of they didn't go with you know your traditional type of grid on the pages either. They kind of varied from page to page to help the storytelling a little bit and to help the mood. I think um, if it had just been inked better, I think I'd give it a higher grade. But as is, I'm going to say C plus. And the story, I like the story. I think they give you kind of a bait and switch on the story because. Because you 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 know you see the the guys escaping from prison and you think this is somehow going to be their story and that one of them is going to end up being the tarantula. It turns out you know no 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 they're just going to get killed off uh, halfway through the book. Uh, and I like that. I, I like the fact that they they kind of play with the reader a little bit there. So I'm going to give the story a B minus and overall I'm going to just say C plus for the book. All right, does that leave me? Oh, did I already you do sure? I can't remember. Oh, okay. Uh, you go. Yeah, there's not much else I can say. Um, it's got it's got ugly people in it, which I like. Um, I love the interior design of the tarantula. Uh, most of the other people, hmm, yeah, not so great. Uh, the cover, um, I like the cover, but it's, I mean, the line work and, and the coloring and everything is so much different than what's inside. Um, I think if you were buying it for that issue, uh, for that reason, then you got inside, you'd probably be a little miffed. Uh, that being said, it's, 
it's a decent enough cover. It's nothing special. Um, so, I mean, the cover art, I, I'd give a C. The interior art, I'd give a C+. Plus. The story, I'd, I'd give a solid B. So, um, I mean, statistically, I guess that makes it like a C plus, but I, I'd give it a B minus. It was fun. And, uh, you know, the I really enjoyed looking at the ads pages in this, too, because yes. if you look very carefully, it would be uh, actually page 19 in the paper copy. If, you know, if, if you've got a CBZ of it, it would be um, it would be page 29. You can see uh, Molester Bot's little brother. So that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> there is some great ads in here. Yeah, I, like I the money like... maker. <laughs> yes. Money Put in maker. a blank piece of paper, turn the knob, and out comes a real dollar that you can spend. <laughs> it's counterfeiting, <laughs> man. That's federal. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that there are. There is one ad for uh, the Aurora superhero model kits. Yeah. Where they have the um, the Superman, Batman, Hulk, Spider-Man, Captain America, and Tarzan. And uh, then right on the same page below it, they have Star Trek ones. And one of the ones they have is the Aurora Mr. Spock, which I thought was nice. At these, at this point, these are, um, um, yeah, this is, this, this is Aurora doing reissues at this point. But then you flip a couple of pages forward, and you get four of the Aurora Glow-in-the-Dark monster kits, uh, which is the Creature from the Black Lagoon, the Wolfman, Godzilla, and King Kong. And then below them are the six Aurora Planet of the Apes kits. So there's a lot of Aurora in this in this comic. And uh, um, I don't know if I've, I've ever told this uh, on, on, on Back to the Bins. I know I've talked about this on the vault, but my father and my brother are both big, uh, big-time big figure modelers. And my dad got his start doing the Aurora kits when he was uh, a kid in, um, you know, growing up in New York. So my dad still has all of his original Auroras, except for the guillotine, which finally just fell apart. But his is, um, you know, Frankenstein's monster, Dracula, Wolfman, all the old school Aurora kits. He has all of his uh, that he built um, when he was a kid, and they're on display in his house, along with the, you know, uh, dozens of other kits that him and my brother have done over the years. So anytime I see those old school Aurora monster kits, it really brings a smile to my face. I actually have on my desk in my bonus room right now, I have a uh, monogram reissue of the Aurora mummy that I am building, because I've Mummy is one of my favorite classical monsters, and I've never built the Aurora kit, so that's one of my my ongoing projects right now. So, oh, it, it, and I love the ads in these in general. I also like the you get a couple of Atlas House ads, and I like yeah. that both of them feature uh, Devilina, who is their kind of sort of not uh, original take on uh, uh, Va- you know Vampirella, and mm-hmm. and uh, she she's not wearing much. Yeah, she'll give uh, Alyssa from Sleepwalker run for her money in the not wearing much yeah. department. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I uh I'm with you totally on the uh, Aurora models. Uh I don't know if, if it made it into my shelf porn post in uh Facebook, but uh, I have all four of the monster models that are shown there plus several others. Uh yeah. I have still in the box waiting for me to take it out and put it together the Cornelius uh model from the Planet of the Apes run. Yeah. Uh and I have the Mr. Spock which is probably the most recent one that I put together and painted and I'm a little unhappy with the way I did his face, so I may have to redo a little of the painting on that one yet. Yeah. But I yeah, only... yeah, I love those models. I had I had them as a kid and then they went away with time and little by little I've uh, re reacquired a lot of them through eBay and and sat down yeah. and tried to, you know, do my best to do a good painting job on each of them. Yeah, and you and you can they've been reissued enough times that you can find one. I mean, like I said I think my monogram mummy I got for like 10 bucks on eBay. 
And it's, you know, I mean, Monogram reissued, I think AMT reissued at one point, Polar Lights did a bunch of reissues through the 90s and 2000s. So unless you're looking for, like, the Dr. Jekyll as Mr. Hyde, because that mold is apparently just gone, uh, you can find usually a pretty decent priced Aurora kit, you know, to, to go with it. I know uh, in the 90s, my, you know, the, the two my, my dad didn't have when he was younger were the Old Witch mm-hmm. and the, um, the Forgotten Prisoner. So he oh, went and got, uh, yes, the, the Forgotten Prisoner where it's the guy chained to the wall. The, so the skeleton dad, chained to the wall. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so dad went and got those off of uh, the, you know, my, my dad's a big on eBay. So yeah, he got those off eBay. So they now stand in the same display case with all of his original Auroras. The, I've, the only, uh, I'm not as big. I do more miniature modeling than, than figure modeling. The only Aurora kit I built is, I know it's Big Shock, is Godzilla. And um, what was nice about that one is my, my brother got me the got. Zilla kit. He also got me. Um, I forget the name of the outfit that does it, but they make repla- uh, resin replacement heads. So that if you want your, in my case, this was a Godzilla that had a replacement head and hand, so he was actually holding the train car in his mouth and then grasping another train car in his hand. But if you want your Frankenstein kit to have uh, Lon Chaney Jr.'s head from Ghost of Frankenstein or Glenn Strange's head from House of House of Frankenstein, they they'll sell you just the resin head that goes on the kit so that you don't have to use the original Aurora head. Nice. So, uh, so that was neat. So I, I but I've got, like I said, I've got the mummy, I've got, um, the Rodan King Ghidorah, King Kong, and, uh, I've got the mummy's chariot and all the other, uh, monster hot rods waiting for me upstairs at some point in the indefinite future. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Some of mine are still in, still in the boxes in the closet waiting for me to finally break them out, including, uh, the Munsters uh, car. Uh-oh. Oh, did you have you did you see the I, I don't think I forget who put it out. There was just came out last year. They put out a um, it wasn't uh, it wasn't Polar Lights. Oh, I can't think of it. It might be the it might be the people that did the reissues on the uh, the monster scenes one. So they did a, a Herman and a grandpa where their bases combined and it made one big scene. I haven't seen that. Yeah, it's um, I'll see if I can look it up real quick here. Herman monster yeah there's a there's a retro shop where my my girlfriend lives and it's it's, mobius that's who did it i'm sorry mobius yeah that's right i was gonna say that oh go for it go for it i was say mobius the the modeling kit not mobius the artist oh okay (laughs) yeah i kind of i kind of thought that's what you meant here's herman he's french anyway right and here is grandpa i'll put it this is fascinating i'm sure but yeah so um (laughs) that's nice yeah and and actually the 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 uh, as as an, um, a nod to the vault of startling monster horror tales of terror, my brother uh, my father in law for Christmas got me uh, AM I think it was AMT just put out a kit of Christine. Oh wow! So oh uh, the, the the Plymouth Fury. Yeah, but it's but it it's oh. actually um, let me let me grab it here. It, it's it's it you know it, it's officially licensed as Christine. Oh, okay. You know I'm gonna, I'm gonna put a light kit in it. You know. Oh, nice! Oh, so that she'll uh, she'll glow on her own power, kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. I keep I keep eyeing up a uh, Frankenstein's creature in, in the Bride model, and it's like it's fifty bucks, and it's like I just I can't I can't give that kind of money to it, especially with my crappy painting skills, because I'd want to do it monochrome, you know, to make it look yeah. like Bride of Frankenstein. It's like I don't have the skills, but it looks so nice. I want it so yeah. bad. That's a Mobius kit as well. That that uh, creature and the for monster and the Bride. I believe. Okay. Well, I had I had far greater skills when my uh, eyesight was better. <laughs> but what are you going to do? Such is life. Yeah. 
Uh, I guess I better start doing them then before mine goes. Okay. But I also, you know, in, well, on, see, on, I, the, I, on I the bright really... side, uh, like I don't really need a high definition TV anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Age has its advantages. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com and is a registered trademark of DeManzocore of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Hi, my name is Bill, and I am an asshole. You know, that, that's what I expect to hear coming out of the speaker one of these days. I never said that. <laughs>